of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. We read one day, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if a man doesn't have a job or an income, he has neither life nor liberty and the possibility for the pursuit of happiness. He merely exists that we spend $322,000 for each enemy we kill in Vietnam, while we spend in the so-called warm poverty in America only about $53 for each person classified as poor. The other thing I want you to understand is this, that it didn't cost the nation one penny to integrate lunch counters. Well. It didn't cost the nation one penny to guarantee the right to vote. But now we are dealing with issues that cannot be solved without the nation spending billions of dollars and undergoing a radical redistribution of economic power. Yes. All labor has dignity. Yes. But you are doing another thing. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. America's opportunity to help bridge the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. And the question is whether America will do it. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. And the real question is whether we have the will. Right. My name is Ben Burgess. I am joined, as always, by our producer, Forrest Miller. How's it going? Uh, <laughs> pretty good. Uh, and in just a few minutes, uh, we'll be speaking uh, to Michael Albert. Uh, but, of course, the uh, the voice you just heard uh, was Martin Luther King um, talking about uh, subjects that uh, are not typically uh, part of uh, of what's discussed on Martin Luther King Day, which uh, which is today this year. Uh, certainly, you know, for for me, you know, I mean, I, I you know, I, I know there are you know parts of the country where people don't, but you know, I grew up having like you know Martin Luther King Day assemblies and stuff, and it was never ever the case uh, that um, that we got clips like that there, right? Like that, yeah. You know, anything remotely similar to that well it really i mean he thought of it as a as a two-part civil rights struggle right so he thought of it as you know uh segregation ending and and pushing towards that which is the first part but then the second part was his like radical redistribution of wealth and ending of poverty which 
Um, you know, it's something that LBJ kind of talked about as well, but obviously didn't really put resources into because by the time that kind of came around with this war on poverty, we were, you know, knee deep in the Vietnam War. But like, I, I think that, you know, part one gets discussed everywhere. Like everybody loves part one. You know what I mean? Liberals, conservatives. Right. But part two, of course, and which is the less successful part, never gets discussed because it's, you know, far too socialistic for, <laughs> for most yeah. people to capitalize on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, th I think one of the things that always really strike me uh, watching clips like that is that nearly everybody who um, who sort of appropriates his legacy and uh, which, you know, which everybody does because, you know, he's, um, you know, he's like, uh, you know, I mean, he's like a saint in, you know, contemporary American culture, even yeah. though, you know, when he died, uh, he was actually an extremely controversial figure. Uh, like the like even a lot of liberals who had maybe supported the uh, efforts to desegregate lunch counters and whatnot uh, didn't you know didn't like him at that point because it was uh, because he was denouncing you know the Johnson administration's war in Vietnam uh, yeah because, uh, he was widely blamed uh, for uh, for riots uh, if you read you know if you read like Rick Perlstein's book he'll talk about uh, ways that like the Chicago Tribune, you know, was was editorializing about Martin Luther King at the time, and that they'd, they'd say, "Oh, well, he says he's against riots, but they keep on happening anyway. So either he's not really against them, or you know, and he really wants to start them, or else he's ineffective." And you uh, see that, and you see that, you know, going up to this day with any kind of civil rights or you know, Black Lives Matter, anything like that. You know what I mean? Like they get thrown under the bus for the riots first before anybody. Yeah. So. Um, so even though as controversial as he was then, uh, he's, you know, extremely uncontroversial now. He's like the least controversial, you know, figure of the 20th century uh, now. Uh, but uh, he's somebody who, who would disagree in one way or another with, uh, you know, with almost everybody, you know, who, um, you know, who, who talks up his legacy now. Uh, so certainly, as you say, you know, the, the way that's focused on is very exclusively about part one, mm -hmm. uh, that because those, those battles have been won, uh, and so they're, they're relatively on, uh, they're relatively uncontroversial now, but then the obvious follow-up question is, uh, okay, so you've, you've done that, right? You have full legal equality, uh, but what are you going to do to have more substantive, you know, quality? Because obviously, look around you, uh, there are uh, there are these these massive disparities and in, in outcomes, you know, between uh, between the races, uh, you know, so-called races, and the conservative analysis is it's like oh, it's something about culture, you know, that mm -hmm. you know uh, people just need to pull their pants up or something, you know, that yeah. would, that's the conservative. Yeah, the, boot, the bootstraps, uh, you know, the bootstraps ideology yeah. idea yeah and the uh and the sort of liberal analysis uh is it's um that it's the the problem like the main residual problem is just uh racism in the sense of the attitudes and you know in people's heads mm -hmm. uh, and that this you know so maybe you can have you know increased efforts of diversity affirmative action whatever but you know that's that's the that would solve that problem but the analysis that the king had was that no, uh, the, you you have to do something about the overall distribution of, of wealth in society, uh, and and that that's the only way to to really do it. That you know because yeah. the effect of capitalism 
is to basically, you know, freeze uh, the, um, you know, like results of past legally mandated racial hierarchy, like, uh, you know, the insect trapped in amber at the beginning of Jurassic Park. Uh, so if you, so the, you know, you have to do something massively redistributive to, uh, to do something about that, about that, which his focus was very exclusively on. In fact, I think, uh, and you know, I mean, whatever, I, I think he was right about almost all of this stuff. I think that the only things, uh, I think that he, I think he was bad on Palestine, although he also died in 1968. Yeah, it was, it was far before the, you know, the settlements and the, the way that thing, it was before the Antifadas. It was before, like, before really, you know, um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. What it is now. Yeah, had taken the form that it would take. Mm -hmm. like, the, uh, the, like, when he was assassinated, the occupation had lasted for, you know, months rather than years, never mind decades. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, so I, I think he may very well have have changed that, but um, which which came up a little bit in the Georgia special election, you know, because when Warnock was actually backing off of some of his good positions on that, he sort of used uh, King's bad positions as a crutch for that. But uh, but in general, I think that you'd have so obviously, you know, mainstream conservatives who don't even like you know who are like opposed to affirmative action even, you know, wouldn't like really almost any of his post-desegregated lunch counters positions, yeah. if, you know, uh, if they, they knew about them or would admit them and, you know, grapple with them. Uh, you know, liberals uh, clearly wouldn't. Uh, even within the left, I mean, honestly, I think that given this sort of analysis we just talked about and his actually pretty relentless focus on economic solutions as what you do after you've achieved, you know, civic and legal equality, right? You know, once once the once you have everybody being equal in the eyes of the law, his solution to the remaining problem was relentlessly in terms of economics. And even while we're uh, finishing that project, um, so uh, like I, I talked about in my discussion with Harvey Kay on the very first episode of the show, I think we might watch the clip in a minute. Um, the like it's 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 weird how much that's been disappeared from the picture, you know. Right, the 1964 march was the march on Washington for jobs and freedom, uh, mm -hmm. and and you know, like you would not guess from the way people talk about it that the jobs and was in there, but and that's and that's the the march where uh, King is like most famous, you know. I have a dream speech, which is is really the the high point of uh, you know, of of the part one solution, I guess, to it. Yeah, totally. Uh, and and so that's quoted in a way that that ignore you know that ignores uh, the rest of the program. And again, the rest of the program was so relentlessly economic that honestly, I think if Martin Luther King or like his close associate Bayard Rustin uh, were alive today, they'd probably be denounced as class reductionists. You know, for for yeah. thinking that all you know that like economics would uh, you know would be the remaining solution after you'd uh, after you'd achieved. Uh, legal equality that, you know, you really don't like, um, I mean, if you go look at the signs at the March on Washington, you know, you see stuff, of course, about, uh, about civil rights laws uh, and police brutality, which is certainly a, a thread connecting that to, uh, to later efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise everything there is about universalist economic programs, you know, jobs, housing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which they understood would, uh, would disproportionately, benefit uh black americans as opposed to white americans because black americans were much more likely to uh to be you know hungry homeless lack health care etc etc uh but 
were things that were very much pitched at at everybody. And uh, when you know, Wing King, uh, like in those last few years, the the years they always skip past at the uh, at the Martin Luther King Day assemblies, you know, in high schools and whatnot. Uh, well, major part of what he was doing was the Poor People's Campaign. You know, again, I was trying to try and like very explicitly universalist economic pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let's let's get together all of the poor people to uh, to oppose uh, to oppose poverty. And I, and it's kind of the you know the starting line metaphor, I guess. You know what I mean? And and you can put conservatives, liberals, and then the more socialistic place that uh, Martin Luther King was at, kind of on on that graph. And it's like you know at the end of part one, conservatives who today claim that, you know what I mean? Like they, they would have been for civil rights, which they definitely wouldn't, but let's right. say that they would, they would leave, you know, they would leave everybody that just uh, gained their civil rights at that starting line. You know what I mean? Like where they were and they'd say, all right, you know what I mean? Run. Whereas liberals would kind of try to make sure that the, the best runners get pushed up towards the, the front of the line, but everyone else would kind of remain behind that. And you know, at the same time, something more universal would make sure that, you know, not just poor black people, but poor white people, you know, all poor people kind of get pushed towards, you know, towards the the, the gap, I guess the, the gap between everybody gets reduced by quite a bit. And it's no longer, you know, in terms of race, it's in terms of class. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. So, um, and, and I think that there are even, you know, there are even lots of places where, you know, he, he even does go beyond the the very robustly social democratic program that's even present at the march on washington uh and certainly later you know with the uh, the freedom budget uh and um you know calls for uh, for a federal uh, federal jobs guarantee um you know ubi not in the not in the libertarian sense that you know would would like substitute for everything else but you know but as as part of a much larger suite of uh, public programs uh, and and there are even places uh, where where he goes, you know, where he sort of says, especially in you know letters and you know a few in contexts like that, that now we really do need to go beyond this completely. That you know that you that capitalism itself is the problem. You know, mm-hmm. he, you know he was a little vague about it, but you know he'd say some sort of democratic socialist you know system, you know, needs to substitute for capitalism per se. And then of course, most controversially, maybe. Uh, in some ways in, uh, in mainstream politics, uh, you know, they, he gave, you know, towards the very end of his life, uh, that, uh, beyond Vietnam speech, uh, where he says that, um, he, uh, he can't, you know, he talks about going around, uh, in inner cities where there had been riots and, you know, giving people his message about, you know, nonviolent me- you know, methods of, of achieving social change, so, you know, to be fair, that is part of it. Sometimes people do misleadingly quote, you know, the that phrase about riots is the language of the unheard. But yeah. um, but then the punchline is, look, when I go around and, and say, you know, this is not the, you know, this is not, you know, a good strategy. And, you know, he's obviously is coming from a, you know, uh, Christian moral worldview. So he's giving more than a strategic critique. But when he goes around and does all of that, he uh, he says that the response he'll get is wait a second what about the massive doses of violence uh, that the U.S. government is uh, is doling out in Southeast Asia and essentially he says good point that's why I decided uh, yeah. to, to to give this speech and he says all kinds of things in that speech I have that I have that queued up if, you know, yeah yeah let's let's watch a few let's watch let's watch a little bit uh, we we want to uh, I have, I have like two minutes of it queued yep. up um, hold on. 
saying that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. I'm still convinced that non-violence is the most potent weapon available to oppress people in their struggle for freedom and justice. I feel that violence will only create more social problems than they will solve, that in a real sense it is impractical for the Negro to even think of mounting a violent revolution in the United States. So I will continue to condemn riots and continue to say to my brothers and sisters that this is not the way. Continue to affirm that there is another way. But at the same time, it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. It has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Social justice and progress are the absolute guarantors of riot prevention. Yeah, and uh, and the foreign policy, you know, part, parts of the speech are at least as radical. He talks about the United States being on the uh, wrong side of, you know, revolutions of barefooted people around the world. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he talks about uh, the, he talks about the Vietnamese revolution in a way that, you know, makes it clear that, you know, obviously he's not a Stalinist or anything, but he's, uh, but he's deeply sympathetic, you know, to uh, to the, the you know the causes and the fundamental goals uh, of that uh, of that revolutionary struggle. Uh, so, you know, if people haven't uh, haven't checked that out, uh, I think uh, you know. I mean, it, they should. Uh, it's uh, you know, I I think that if you're going to hear as much as you do about Martin Luther King in American society today, uh, you know, and you've you know you've probably even heard today. Uh, then, uh, then you should, you know, then you owe it to yourself to, uh, to, you know, to find out, uh, you know, what he, uh, what he thought about all of this stuff. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a much richer and, and more radical legacy. And, you know, and, and I think there's, there's also a, um, I think there's also a little lesson in, in the other direction, right? I remember Michael Brooks used to, 
you know, like put it this way a couple times, you know, that they like that at the same time, there are other superficially more radical currents going on, but really it's the guys in the, uh, in the start shirts, uh, you know, with the, the kind of you know, message of legal rights and, and social democratic programs who, who had the, the much more compelling uh, program. So uh, before we, uh, before we bring on Michael Albert, you want to, uh, you want to do just a minute of Harvey K? Yeah. So, so I, I guess one, one thing, thing you know that, that I, I also wanted to tie this into was that you know there's there's been this kind of longstanding uh, you know pre Andrew Yang right you know debate yeah, yeah. on uh, on the left uh, about whether the idea that we should have some kind of like universal support for having some kind of livelihood uh, should take the form of something like a UBI um, or it should take the form of something like a universal jobs guarantee. Uh, which um, is also, I know something you know that that I've, I've heard you talk about before, uh, and and you know we've only got a minute now, but I really hope you're going to come back to talk more about this with hey, me. I'll, I'll be back all the time to be with you. All right. Uh, so in um, you know, and this 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 other demand, this universal jobs guarantee, this jobs for all demand, right. uh, is something that uh, was uh, historic. Though he gave the speech that has become the iconic speech of the day. Now, it's also worth noting if we full employment, which was to say the right to a job. Now, in 1940, sorry, in 1963, it's A. Philip Randolph, the black and black civil rights and decidedly labor leader who was himself a socialist, who actually organized the, with the uh, sleeping car porters union, right? Right, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, right. And they they're the organizers of the March on Washington. And people should try to read Randolph's own speech that day. And by the way, Martin Luther King was not involved in organizing it, though he gave the speech that has become the iconic speech of the day. Now, it's also worth noting, if we go back to 1943-44, that Martin Luther King Jr. was a very young, brilliant, precocious kid. And he entered university at like 14 or 15 years of age. And he was uh, uh, the, the, one of the major black colleges. I'm blank. All of a sudden, I'm blanking. Down in Atlanta, not far Morehouse? from where you are. What's that? Morehouse. Morehouse. That thank right? you very much. Yep. Morehouse. And while he was there, A. Philip Randolph came to Morehouse and did a short residency and did a series of lectures. And this was also the time, of course, of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights speech. And and King's father was very much a pro Roosevelt. Can't call him a Democrat because that would imply a Southern Democrat, but he decided he, well, this was a New Deal family. Okay. F, so Martin Luther King clearly is cultivating in his own mind an idea of social democracy or democratic socialism. So when we come to 1963, you've got A. Philip Randall, Martin Luther King, and Walter Ruther, as you said, UAW leader, who is literally the guy who writes the checks to underwrite the March on Washington that brought 250,000 people to DC. And here's the next thing. In the following year after that speech, and soon you get, Martin Luther King will soon after the Civil Rights Act is enacted and the voting rights, he's going to pursue the poor people's campaign. And he's also going to have issued um, um, a minority people's bill of rights call. Similarly, A. Philip Randolph issues a freedom budget and the freedom budget is a, literally a call to, make, to end poverty and make freedom from want 
true in America. And it includes over and over again, the imperative of full employment, basically a guaranteed right to a job. If not in private industry, then decidedly the federal government will create those jobs. Not yeah. So uh, this is, I uh, should check out the, uh, the whole interview. Uh, it's available on the uh, on the YouTube page, or you can just go. You know, you can just go listen to uh, listen to that episode. Throwback uh, to the first episode of uh, Give Them an Argument. Yeah, that's right. The uh, uh, the very first one. Um, so and uh, and also, I should uh, I should say really quick. We should do the plug before we bring Michael Albert on. Uh, that uh, if you uh, if you want to uh, to access. Uh, you know, every single episode, that's a public one, but also the, uh, the patron ones should go to, uh, patreon.com, uh, slash Ben Burgess. Uh, and of course, uh, that, that helps support everything that, you know, that we do here and, uh, and pay everybody's salary. Uh, you should, uh, you know, whatever, uh, wages, you know, I guess, I guess salary makes this sound like a little bit more stable and institutional, you know, than, uh, than the show is just yet. But, um, and I should also I should also mention our uh, graphic uh, graphic designer, the uh, extremely talented uh, J. Andrew World, has uh, has been making some little three panel comics with uh, with images from Pulp Fiction uh, to uh, to advertise um, the uh, the Patreon. So I think we have just one of them uh, one of them here right now. Yeah. All right. So. Um, if you're uh, if you're listening to this later in the uh, in the audio version, uh, it's um, uh, Samuel Jackson and uh, and John Travolta in uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, you know what they call a give them an argument with Ben Burgess in Paris? They don't call it a give them an argument with Ben Burgess. Uh, uh, no, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a Ben Burgess is. So what do they call it? And then he gives the French name and whatever. And then uh, he uh, there's a little joke if you uh, if you understand french but that doesn't matter and then he says uh uh well what do they call a michael brooks show well michael brooks show is a michael brooks show but they call it le michael brooks show le michael brooks show ha 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 what do you uh what do they call the uh, rachel maddow show i don't know i didn't watch rachel maddow <laughs> so, um anyway made me laugh i uh, appreciate the uh you know appreciated that but uh, with no further ado, I am uh, extremely excited uh, to uh, to bring on uh, Michael Albert, uh, who is the uh, the author of uh, several books, uh, notably including uh, Paracon, uh, Life After Capitalism. Uh, and I wanted to uh, to to bring him on to uh, to talk uh, about that, about his his vision of of a post capitalist society and what what that might look like. Uh, and also uh, a little bit about uh, left strategy and uh, and and how to get there. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Michael. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it muchly. Yeah. So, I want to uh, actually before we before we really dive into uh, to anything uh, the stuff that I, I actually brought you on to uh, to talk about. Since I know you were in the waiting room while we were doing that previous segment uh, about Martin Luther King Day. I did want to just give you the opportunity to add anything that you wanted to add to that. Not really. I mean, I thought it was a good segment, uh, and and it honed in on the on the reality of, uh, as you put it, two phases or two parts uh, of King. Um, 
I was there in those times. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and I have to be honest about it. I and people who I interacted with for the most part were in the streets and organizing and, you know, knocking on doors and all that, but pretty nearly uh, oblivious to Kane. Uh, I think I think insofar as I can remember, we were uh, concerned with the Panthers, concerned with the um, people like St then Stokely Carmichael, mm -hmm. um, Snick in the South. Uh, not as much Ken, uh, although he was such an excellent speaker that you would, you know, you would see snippets of it or reproductions of it. Not like now you can see anything <laughs> more than you can <laughs> see it then. I mean, it's sort of amazing. Um, and then you would be very moved by his eloquence and his, uh, you know, effectiveness. But it wasn't, um, it wasn't where I was, so to speak, in the, in the left. Yeah, well, let's, let's, let's talk just a little bit about where you were. So, um, so what was your kind of entry point into radical politics? Well, it's, it's a longer story than I think you probably want to hear. But when I went to college, I'll keep it as short as I can. When I went to college, I was... I was, you know, awakening a bit, um, listening to Bob Dylan very closely and being very moved by it. Um, but when I got to college, I, I went to school in Cambridge to MIT. And of course, Noam Chomsky was there. And I was very quickly uh, radicalized. And um, in those days, things happened very fast. Um, you went from whatever you were to radical to a raging revolutionary it could happen in months it could actually happen for some people in weeks um, and so that happened and uh, the, the part of the left that i was in we talked about things like uh, we called it the totality of oppression and that meant racism sexism and classism or economic relations class relations and i was pretty much from the beginning um very dubious about uh, some approaches. Uh, Marxism as it was being formulated at the time, being practiced by various groups, didn't hold much allure for me, even though I certainly agreed with the critique of capitalism and with the, uh, you know, the, the issue of private property being a gigantic problem, etc. Um, but it wasn't long before. I, I guess you would have to say I was more a part of the new left. I was more mm. a part of the left that was concerned with the totality of oppression. Um, to get to what you want to talk about today, I think, mm. I was, I encountered, like many of my age in those times, encountered lots of people saying, I get what you don't like, you know, you, you scream that loud enough and widely enough and I have ears and I can see and I get that, but what do you want? And that was very commonly raised and it was commonly raised as a kind of attack, a very intelligent attack in which what they were doing, parents would do it with their children and other people would do it, you know, in, in other venues faculty would do it with students and they would basically be saying to us you have no alternative you don't know what you want you have no right to be dissenting the way you are um with the militants mm -hmm. and so on and at first i reacted to that like many others did 
you know, can you curse on the score on the show? Yeah, yeah, go for it. I mean, get fucked. You know, they would yeah. they would say that, and I would say back. You know, you don't have to have an alternative to slavery to be an abolitionist. You don't have to have a and and on and on with examples. Right. And then again, you know, I don't have to have a complete and comprehensive alternative to capitalism to know that it is a disgusting, abysmal system. But then I decided I was wrong, and I was wrong not because I was technically wrong. That response was a correct response, especially coming from somebody so young. But the question was fair also, right? The question was saying, absent an alternative, you want me to take risks, you want me to, to put myself in a, in a position of opposition to people around me, maybe to my employer, and on and on. Um, and I just think you're nuts. You know, I'm not going to do that for nothing with no clarity about where we're going. And so that was when I decided, I guess, along with Robin Hanel, um, that we would at least try to do a better job of answering the question. Yeah. So just uh, just so I'm unclear, because I, I think I don't really know this, like like when when is that, that the, the two of you started developing these ideas? Well, I, I guess around... 67 68 mm -hmm. i mean but that was early uh, you know but it was it was pretty early robin majored in economics at harvard and i was at mit but we were very close and i distinctly remember one day in the mit student center there are these little rooms and we went into this little room and i said okay um teach me marxism um and he did um and you know he he explained i think the essence of it very clear language in a very short period of time. And then I had my concerns with it. And so even at that stage, we were starting to question, well, what is this thing called socialism? You know, is it really, is it, is it what we see out there, which calls itself socialism and is called by the United States socialism? Or is it something else? Or do we want something else? What, what difference does the name make? What's the substance and so on? And then I guess we started, and I would say, uh, you know, the beginnings of it were, in, I don't know, maybe 69, 70, and, uh, you know, some years later, it was, it was more mature, still not the full vision, but it was, it was getting there. Yeah, so uh, when you talk about what was called socialism, you know, what uh, I, I guess back then some people called actually existing socialism back when it actually existed, uh, is, you know, the, the system that, that they had in, you know, the Soviet Union and other countries without, you know, flattening too much, you know, that there are, you know, there are differences, you know, between local variations of it. Uh, but we, we pretty much, uh, we pretty much know what we're talking about there that, you know, that you have a system, uh, with, well, in those cases, certainly one party states, uh, but also with, um, with planned economies. So there are, even though there are still markets for consumer goods, you know, Soviet citizens are still paying rubles and, you know, using them to buy things at stores. Uh, there, there are major aspects of economic activity that are, are taken completely out of the market uh, and, uh, and planned by the state. And one way of being a, you know, radically democratic, well, so certainly one way that anybody who's like an anti-Stalinist, you know, leftist would, would criticize that system is that 
uh, is the lack of uh, of democracy uh, that you know we, we we that we want things like you know free speech and multi party elections. Uh, you know, we want them maybe even for their own sake, you know, because because uh, they're they're important goods. Uh, and we uh, and maybe some people also think that, you know, that those having those things would be, um, you know, would be important economically. But I think one kind of simple minded way of kind of entering into like the problem that this this model participatory economics that, you know, you and Robin Hanna are developing uh, is supposed to solve is to do just a, a quick little dumb thought experiment and say, okay, well, well, if you had basically how the Soviet economy works, but you layered, you know, parliamentary democracy onto it. So you had multi-party elections and, you know, maybe the, uh, whichever party won the election uh, that year got to appoint the head of the Soviet planning office, Gosplan. Uh, and there was like a there was there was some sort of mechanism to make sure that media was relatively independent and you could say what you want all that stuff right so you have free speech and you know free press and multi party elections uh, that certainly would have been better and there's no doubt that uh, certainly in my mind that some of the worst horrors of that system wouldn't have been committed by people who had to worry about um, about you know winning you know reelection uh, but it's not obvious that that alone would solve uh, some of the problems that uh, that helped cause the mass discontent that helped bring down bring down that system. That they that if if you are a Soviet consumer, uh, you you know like you might have a lot of rubles in your pockets, but you, know, you go to the store and you just sort of have to hope that they they have the stuff that you want. Uh, and uh, and there's that it's it's some reasonably high quality and all of that stuff. And these things uh, might be easy from a certain perspective to, to trivialize, but they're very important to people. And they're, they're a big part of the reason why uh, most, most people, you know, Soviet citizens, you know, were going to defend that system, uh, you know, when it, uh, when it started to, uh, to fall apart. And, and my understanding is that participatory, you know, so actually here, let me, let me just put it this way and then throw it to you. So one, one way, one very common way, I think, on the left, even the radical left, of uh, of trying to of like dealing with that reality that like even that version of the Soviet Union with free speech and multi party election would still have had these deep economic problems, is to say, okay, uh, well, uh, maybe we do need we do need markets in certain areas in which they didn't exist in the Soviet Union. That's one very common solution, but participatory economics, as I understand it, is supposed to solve the same problem in a different way. So you want to speak to that? Yeah, but I want to go back a little bit in what you said, if I could. Yeah, please. Um, yep. and, and I think I can make the, uh, the, the point that you were raising even more stark, because some of your readers might not be too familiar with the Soviet Union. So make it the United States. Yeah. And, and make it that, um, that property is taken away from owners. And uh, so now we, we have the the absence of capitalists, mm. uh, and now uh, retain the democratic apparatus uh, and introduce central planning. And the question becomes, is it better? Well, very likely, um, at least as a structure, it's better. Yes, just like what you described would have been better than what the Soviet Union had. Yeah, I agree with that. Would I still be a revolutionary? Yes. Um, why? Am I nuts? Um, well, because, and there's an irony here that, um, 
that Marxism says something that I don't think, which is that economics is at the bottom of everything. I, I think it's it's more a paramount important aspect of life and sector of society, but so too is culture and and uh, the political system and so on. But anyway, the irony is that uh, uh, many Marxists sort of follow the the strain of thought of changing the political system in the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and paying very little attention to the economy as as a fundamentally important part and a problem. So what's the problem? Well, before we get even to the allocation system, planning, there's a class problem, I think. That is, I think that the Soviet Union, it's not just state capitalism, as a lot of people would try to say. And it isn't just um, socialist economics ruined by a political apparatus. It's a new class on top, a class that was previously certainly below owners, but above workers. I call it the coordinator class. And a class has to be something that gets its position, gets its agenda, gets its self perception and its and its approach from its position in the economy. And I think that's true of the coordinator class. And what characterizes them isn't that they privately own means of production. They don't. Um, it's that they monopolize empowering circumstances, that their circumstances in the economy and in their preparation for it earlier in life and in education and so on, but in the economy, uh, gives them a situation that empowers them, that gives them information, that gives them skills, uh, that that they can use then to accrue more wealth and more, and they have more power because they are, because they are on top of the decision-making apparatus. Meanwhile, workers, because I call that a separate cl working class, coordinator class, owning class, um, workers also work, also work for a wage, like coordinators under capitalism. Um, but they do work that is disempowering. They do work that reduces skills, that fragments people one from the other, that keeps you away from the levers of decision-making. And their circumstances are such, therefore, that they don't play the role of participating and controlling and determining the direction of society and the economy. Now, couple that with a authoritarian state, and of course, it's you know it's going to hell in a handcart. It's 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 a mess. Um, so, for participatory economics, in some sense, the first step, I suppose you mm. could say, if you want to have self-management, is you have to have a mechanism by which or a venue through which workers and consumers can self-manage collectively. So that's one step. And then the next step is the work. The workers and consumers have to be prepared to do so. They have to be inclined to do so. It doesn't do any good if you sort of formally have some rights, as we can see from democracy in the political sphere, if you formally have some rights, but you are denied the circumstances, the information, the skills and confidence, the time, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to use those rights. Uh, and so the first step for participatory economics is workers and consumers council as a, as a venue of decision making. And the second step is, um, this is going fast, but 
that's okay. The second step is uh, to change the way labor is organized. Yeah. So let's 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 maybe pause on the first step. Uh, so, okay. uh, so I, I and I do want to, you know. I do want to make sure that we that we are going to circle back to to the uh, the efficiency you know economic efficiency problem, but uh, but when you you talk about uh, workers and and consumers councils, uh, I think that you know what you know what a workers council uh, could be. Uh, I, I think a lot of people have at least like a vague sense of that. You know that that you have uh, that you know management at a workplace could you know could be done. You know, by uh, by some sort of you know democratic organ of the uh, the people who who work there, uh, you know, you know, in this, I mean, look, we even have under you know under capitalism, even in you know unionized workplaces, you know, you at least have, even if it, it doesn't hold power, it has to negotiate with the boss. You know, you you do have some, you know, often not ideally democratic, but you know, some version of that. So I I think that a lot of people have some sense of what that means. But when you when you talk about consumer councils, uh, you know what what does that mean exactly? Well, that's it's mainly for um, collective goods. So, in a simple example, let's say you live in a neighborhood, and one mm -hmm. of the issues isn't just am I going to get a shirt or not, what food am I going to get, et cetera, et cetera. Individual consumption choices, but a collective consumption choice, say a new park or a, a big swimming pool for the neighborhood or something like that. So it's it's collective goods versus individual goods, and collective mm -hmm. goods can occur at many levels, a neighborhood, a county, a state, um, even larger. Uh, and so the, the consumer council part of it is, is making decisions about that, and the producer council is making decisions about producing and organizing work and amount and so on. And when we come to it, allocation, of course, has to have some method by which these, these entities um, as actors in the economy receive the information that they need, voice the preferences that they have, and the result gets done. You described central planning. Central planning in its simplest form is basically trivial. It's down go orders, up comes some reactions. Down go orders, perhaps slightly altered, up comes obedience. That's central planning. That's the essence of it. Markets, the essence of it is buyers and sellers compete uh, and uh, seek to improve their own circumstances in a transaction. And those who are affected beyond the transaction basically are excluded from the discussion. They're not part of the discussion. The buyer is interacting with the seller, but the others are absent. Uh, and those two definitions economists would agree to. Um, the reason I wanted to discuss the, the coordinator class stuff first is because if, you, if we ignore that discussion, I think, um, class does matter. And if we ignore that discussion, that class division becomes a schism, a rule, class rule. And anything that we're trying to do for other aspects of an economy is going to be subverted by that power differential. So if that power differential between 20% coordinator class, 80% working class, 20% empowered by their circumstances, 80% disempowered by their circumstances. If that situation is sort of, you know, arsenic for the rest of our desires, then we have to figure out the source of that. You know, why, why does that exist? And of course, People who basically like it 
and who would like to preserve it or are horrified about the, by the idea of trying to do away with it would say, well, it exists because that's the character of human beings. About 20% are born to participate, to play a role, to uh, engage, to be creative, and about 80% are born to do their bidding. Um, I don't think that's the case. Right. Uh, and so not thinking that's the case, you have to ask, well, how do, why? And, I mean, why does it arise? And Robin and I answered that in a way that is a little bit unusual. We said, look, it arises because the economy is structured that way, and you must enter the economy to live, to function. And what you can enter is 80% jobs that are disempowering, 20% jobs that are empowering. So then the question, well, what do you do about it? Right? How do you, what, what can you do? And so the, I think the big, perhaps the most controversial, but certainly one of the most controversial things about participatory economics is the proposal that what has to be done, if we're gonna deal with this problem, uh, is to change jobs, change them in such a way that everybody's work, we don't all do the same thing. That's impossible, that's ludicrous. Okay, so that's not the solution. Uh, the solution seems to be that you change work around so that each person does a mix of things that compose a job, a viable job that the person is able to do. But that mix of things is such that everybody's job and, and economic circumstances is comparably empowering to everybody else's. And so you don't have people who are doing only empowering work. Let's say being a surgeon is really empowering. I don't know. I think it is. But Mm -hmm. But let's say it is. So you don't have somebody who's doing only surgery and somebody else who's only cleaning bedpans. And you don't have, and now you can go on and on and on with the fifth of and the four-fifths of the workforce. You'd have to reimagine work, redesign work, redesign work, so that um, people's circumstances are comparably empowering, to the extent possible, equally empowering. But you can't do it, you know, to the 14th decimal place. That's ridiculous. But you can certainly accomplish it. And then and then you have a different education system needed, right? In our con in our capitalist organization and in the organization of work in the old Soviet Union, mm -hmm. uh, basically the same, uh, you, your your educational system has to graduate people to fit. If it graduates people that don't fit, then you have chaos in the in society. So what does it have to do? Well it has to educate four out of every five people to endure boredom and take orders. Right. And it has to educate one out of every five people to become, you know, not quite a master of the universe in a capitalism, that's the owners, but in what has been called by many people socialism, but now I want to call it coordinatorism, uh, to become the master of the universe that is the one-fifth who runs the economy. Okay, so you know, if if we don't change that, we're in trouble. I think. Um, yeah, I mean, what like this is already a place. I think somebody could, uh, you know, could worry about uh, about it because you have, um, you know, like if, you know, if some people are trained as surgeons, um, you know, are you going to have to like? depending on how much time they have to, to spend doing, you know, doing less empowering tasks, uh, 
then you know that you might end up having to to train you know twice as many surgeons so you can get just as much surgery done as you would with one person being a full-time surgeon maybe that's not a big deal but you know that 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 is um you know that is an obvious cost of doing things that way there's a prior uh a prior criticism which is made much more often and we might as well not skip it um, mm. and then then let's address yours also uh, because the prior one is is made much more often and it's basically people saying well now wait a second uh you're telling me that one of the people who is now in that 80 percent is might be giving me my surgery mm -hmm. right i don't want that i think that the 20 percent are there because they're smarter more capable more creative more industrious and the 80 percent are where they are because that's the best they can do. Um, and that's a far more prevalent belief. Uh, it isn't always voiced, but even on the left, a lot of people believe that. Um, and the answer to it, well, we, there's no point in spending a lot of time on it because it doesn't appear that you're gonna push that. No, you know, that no, that, that actually okay. wouldn't be my worry here, but, but do okay. give your answer to it. But it, it, the answer to it, I think is, uh, is, is that the, Let's do this as an example of it. If we go back 50 years, the same question arises about women as compared mm -hmm. to men or blacks as compared to whites. The exact same question. And it looks like if you examine it superficially, it's mm -hmm. valid, right? Because you see all this sector of people not doing surgery and not doing coordinator class type activities, right? Mm -hmm. And you and you see and, and you can explain it. And it would be an explanation if it was true, right? You can explain it by saying that's all they're capable of. Okay, so now yeah. in the case of women and blacks, we know that that was nonsense. And we know yeah. that it was a product of the circumstances and of the lives that they lead, led yeah. and of the positions that they found themselves in. And what I'm claiming is the exact same thing is true, effectively in the same way as, uh, you know, for working working class people, not, not, not coordinator class, but working class people, their circumstances, their living conditions, their prior lives, and especially what they encounter on entering the economy produces uh, their position, uh, their subordination. And it's not a function of a lack of capacity. The, can everybody be a surgeon? Of course not. That's ridiculous. I couldn't be. That's ridiculous. Well, so, so, so that is what I was going to say, though, uh, that it's I think with you know I think you don't have to fall into thinking that um, you know that there's some sort of big picture division you know between you know four fifths and one fifth of you know the human race or anything like that uh, to to think that you know that there are like probably most people who are born into middle class households with lots of opportunities etc. Um, I'm guessing. Uh, you know, couldn't, you know, couldn't be surgeons, maybe, uh, you know, maybe most of them could be, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't, I don't actually, you know, having, uh, having never, uh, you know, having never been anywhere around that and not, uh, you know, not having made any attempt to, uh, you know, become any sort of doctor myself, I have no idea, but, you know, it, it, it sounds, I, I think it's plausible that, that most people from any class background, you know, that like, there are lots of things, maybe surgery is one of them, maybe not, but there are lots of things that are uh, relatively specific, uh, you know, skills that that do require, you know, per, you know, I mean, particular temperaments, you know, uh, that you know, etc. Uh, you know, steady hands certainly in the case of surgery, and, and 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 that's not to say that the people who are doing them are the only people, you know, who 
who could do them. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that the, you know, I think it's, it's certainly plausible that in a society where, you know, more people had the opportunity to pursue those specialized skills that, you know, that, that we could get, uh, you know, that we could get a much bigger, you know, that we could get a bigger pool of people. And look, in fact, look, I mean, even in, um, even, you know, I think we even have some country by country, you know, evidence of this, uh, that the, um, you know, that I, I know that like in Cuba, for example, the proportion of doctors to patients, uh, you know, for, for all of the problems, you know, with, with the, uh, the system there, uh, the proportion of doctors to patients is like off the charts compared to almost anywhere else in the world, because, you know, because they, they push it, you know, very heavily and, and don't, you know, and, and certainly don't charge anybody, you know, for going to medical school. Uh, but it's not quite like it's, uh, but presumably for at least some skills, we are talking about relatively small pe pools of people to do them. I mean, maybe if we only had to. But it's not the issue. Okay. In, in other yeah. words, all right, so so let's take now and, and yeah. say yeah. rough numbers, 20% coordinator class, 80% working class. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what has to happen if we're going to have a situation where virtually 100% are sufficiently prepared, sufficiently confident, sufficiently mm. skilled to participate without being sort of dwarfed by others mm. who take all the reins. Mm -hmm. Well, it isn't that everybody has to be everything. Right. It's that you have to do a mix of stuff that leaves you comparably empowered. Now, 50 years ago, again, people would have said that women couldn't do it at all. Right. Somebody enlightened might have said, well, sure, some women can be surgeons, but not at a sufficient pace for what you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, women being comparable to men throughout the economy. But of course, that's been proved nonsense. Right. And and the reality is that that the extent to which the, the thing is a product, that, that the differences between the groups is a product. Mm -hmm. is a function of the institutional structure. And all that's being said is, let's say that for the sake of discussion, again, I, I don't know what figures are. Nobody knows anything about right. this. But let's say that you need among the 80%, right, mm -hmm. a comparable percentage of, of people to be able to be doctors as you have among the 20%, mm -hmm. not all of whom are doctors by any means or could mm -hmm. be. Right. So right. you need that comparable percentage. And that's exactly what happens if we look at women from 50 years ago. Right. The 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 probability and the likelihood and the disposition and the inclination to be a doctor among women is about the same as among men. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I think the the likelihood, the probability, the disposition and the inclination to be to do empowered work. Mm -hmm. either doctor or, or anything else, right? Engineer, whatever, mm -hmm. right? Is going to be comparable among that 80% as it is among the 20%. Um, and I, I think that's, that's valid. It doesn't have to sure. be for this to work, but I suppose for this to be, you know, perfect. Yeah, I mean, but, but for the, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to spend too much time on, on, okay. on the floor because I, th I think there are more interesting things to get to, but I, I think that with, what you're talking about, right? What I've seen you refer to elsewhere is balanced job complexes that you have. You have um, that you can't have. You know, some people at the uh, at the you know the workplace where brain surgery happens. You can't have some people who only do brain surgery and some people only sweep the floors. 
uh, you you have to have a mix, uh, you know, a mix of people performing. Not that even at that workplace necessarily everybody has to perform brain surgery, but you have to have a mix of people performing relatively more empowering and relatively less empowering tasks, which uh, which does mean that you would have to presumably, you know, if you don't want a, a reduction in the amount of brain surgery that's going on, you'd have to you know train more brain surgeons yeah. than uh, than you have you have right now. Uh, I, I agree with you, by the way, that 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 like I, I think that's realistic that you could. I think that's fine. Uh, you know, I could see somebody, and it's not a point I necessarily want to get too hung up on. I, I could see somebody saying um, that it's like relatively inefficient to you know have to train you know uh, to train twice as many brain surgeries. surgeries people do say them. that. Yeah, so people do criticize it that way. But look at what's really being said. What's being said is it's relatively inefficient to tap the talents and capabilities of 80% of the population. That's mm -hmm. literally what's being said, right? It's more efficient to train them to endure boredom and take orders. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly what's happening, the, the virtue of the approach is to keep the relatively small number of people on top, empowered, mm -hmm. and with so much power that they can take tremendous wealth. Let me just give one little story that I think sure. makes, a, makes a point. Um, yeah. I was in Argentina, and it was uh, not long after, well, actually it was six, eight months after, um, the, the, the events there in which many factories were taken over by workers. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't taken over by and large in a kind of an upsurge, um, you know, ideological and organized and so on. It was rather that the economy was in trouble and the capitalists were punting. And when they wanted to, to punt, the workers took over the factory. And not only did that happen, but most of the, what I call coordinator class said to themselves, good Lord, the owner just left. This is a disaster. I'm getting out of here too. So they yeah. left also. So the workers were left with these workplaces. Mm -hmm. And I was in a meeting with about people from about 50 of them. And I was supposed to give a talk. And so we sat around and, and we started off and people started describing their experience. Mm -hmm. And at first, it was very buoyant and excited because, you know, people were meeting other people and so on. By about the literally the seventh talker, and I started telling this a long time ago, and it stayed the seventh all the time because that's what I remember what I've said. But by the seventh speaker, um, the room was maudlin, mm -hmm. really depressed. And the seventh speaker said rather eloquently, building on the sixth, I never thought I would say anything like this. But maybe Margaret Thatcher was right. Maybe there is no alternative. Mm -hmm. We took over the factory. We pretty much equalized rages. We'll talk about what I think maybe might be a little better than that in a, if you want in a while. Yeah, but please. anyway, we, we radically changed wages. Mm -hmm. We formed our workers' council. We voted. We started making decisions. And now it's six, seven, eight months later, and all the old crap is coming back. And, and they were just despondent about it. And when I spoke, I just said, you think that it's because it's built into who we are, into our nature somehow. And they sort of nodded and said, yeah, it feels like it. Uh, that's what the manager, one of them said, that's exactly what the manager told me before the manager left, who I knew. And I said, well, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's something different. When you took over, and you made the changes you did 
did you change the way labor was organized, the way work was organized? And at first they didn't understand the question, not because they were dumb, but because it's just never asked, right? And so I said, well, did you keep the jobs that existed before? They said, yes. I said, well, who did the books in your in your workplace? And they would say, well, somebody volunteered, sort of like Che volunteering to, you know, uh, that's a longer story. Anyway, they, they, they said, who volunteered? And they said, well, somebody volunteered and did it. And I said, and what's happened? And they said, well, you know, all the old crap's coming back. And I said, well, doesn't that mean that those people are taking more income for themselves, the ones who took those jobs, that those people are going to the meetings that you arranged, the workplace council that you arranged, right? And you're not, you're not going. And they said, yeah, that's right. You know, attendance is falling off dramatically and they're there. And I said, yeah, well, that's because you don't want to go to a meeting where they're the only ones who talk and where they have all the information. And when they come in and set the agenda and you're basically there being told what the outcome is going to be. They said, yeah. And so the point here is that their tremendous desire, every one of them, there's no managers left in the workplace. There's no owner. They all wanted to have essentially self-management. They mm -hmm. wanted to control their own lives, right? And they and they took steps to have it happen, but they didn't change that institutional relationship, that division of labor, and that subverted their desires. Retaining it was 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 like arsenic for their desires, it, 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 and that's how institutions work. They have implications; they really do matter, and some institutions have essentially deadly implications. So this institution, the corporate division of labor, we could call it, has this deadly implication. And there arose for us years ago when we were doing it, uh, the idea that the need for a, a different approach, balanced job complexes, wasn't some minor thing. And it wasn't some sort of peripheral thing. But it was a very, very centrally important thing, just like getting rid of private ownership of the means of production is central thing, right? If you don't do that, your other efforts are going to be subverted by retaining private ownership of the means of production. Similarly, if you don't deal with the division of labor, desires for self-management, desires for equity, other desires are going to be subverted by the retention of that and the residual effects it has and the way it it causes people to have different interests, opposed interests, class struggle, basically. So that was the second step. The third step had to do with income. I don't know whether you want to talk about that or not. That's yeah. also pretty controversial. Okay, yeah, give me the income step. Well, economists basically tell us mm -hmm. that income can be a function of a few different different phenomena. There's certain different norms for remuneration, they call it. Remuneration being what you get, uh, your income, the share it gives you, the the, the claim mm -hmm. it gives you on the social product. That's what your income does, right? And they would say that, well, income can be based upon uh, the extent to which stuff that you own, so private property, uh, contributes to the social product, and that's called profits. And Or it can be based upon... Uh, power, bargaining power, basically you get what you can take. And that's basically what we have with a market system. And there's a real way to say, you, you can even make the case that, look, that's what property is also, all right? The legal system is set up in such a way that property gives you bargaining power. Mm -hmm. So you, you could make the case that it's all bargaining power, or you could say it's bargaining power and remuneration of property. 
A third possibility is that you get what you produce. So in other words, you get back from the social product an equivalency in terms of value of what you contribute to the social product. Okay, minus some because some goes to insurance and generalized health care and whatever else. But basically, you get in proportion to what you contribute to the social product. And that's a position that many socialists hold. So a great many people who call themselves socialists, including people who call themselves socialists and don't like what they would might call 20th century socialism, and, and are in fact adamantly opposed to it, but still call themselves socialists, like that position. Uh, and Robin and I thought about that and decided, no, that that's neither ethical nor economically smart. Why isn't it ethical? Well, why isn't getting income for property ethical? It's because you're not, you just inherited it. Um, it's, it's like luck in who your parents were um, that determines the property that you own. Or maybe you were lucky in business and you can manage to own a ton, right? But it's rewarding ultimately luck in some, some very real sense. Nothing that you should you know, and then, then it's the same thing with uh, with rewarding people for what they put in because some people are luckier than others and uh, no, but uh, the luck includes genetic and, and how much and how much how in their their physical or mental capacities yeah. you know what they can do yeah which by the way is actually the a lot of people think that the uh, a lot of people think that what Marx advocated was uh, was having uh, this this kind of um, Getting back the full product of your labor, uh, but this is uh, this is a criticism he makes of the uh, uh, the other the Lasallian faction of the German socialist movement in the uh, first chapter of the critique of the Gotha program. Uh, so uh, so yeah, so I, I get the. I may be wrong about this because I'm no yeah. Marx scholar, right? Yeah. I think he was mostly contributing. Is your eye okay? Uh, yeah, no, I said I don't know, but anyway, right. don't worry about it. Yeah. So I think he was mostly uh, criticizing the. Um, the lack of attention to the idea that a certain amount has to go to investment, a certain amount has to go to providing medical care, a certain amount has to go to education, and so on and so forth. And then you get back in accord with your product. But but maybe he didn't. It doesn't matter what he what. To yeah, me, yeah, no, matter, it, the it, question is what's right, what's good. No, no, fair enough. Uh, so um, there is uh, just you know. Just for fun, uh, though, he, he does let me, say... Let me just finish the case. It'll just take another... Sure, sure. Be my guest. Yeah. All right. So so we don't want to reward luck in the genetic lottery. That's one of the hard steps to, for a lot of people to take, right? So yeah. it shouldn't be the case that LeBron James earns $40 million a year. Yeah. He, he doesn't even get his full product, his full contribution to the social product. He doesn't have enough bargaining power. Nike right. gets some of it. The owner of... The team gets some of it. The TV networks get some of it. He doesn't get it all, but he gets a shitload and way more than most any socialist would think is, has any relation to reality. And yet he's getting back less than the value of his product. You might not like that so many people like watching him play, but they do. And that's not, you know, you, you don't get to decide for everybody else what they're. Okay, so not the genetic lottery, but what about the tools lottery? You know, why should you get more? Because you happen to be using better tools because you were lucky in the tools lottery, so to speak. Or you were lucky because you're producing something that's highly valued as compared to something that's less valued, but still valued. Mm -hmm. um, or you even have better workmates. So is there a way to not reward any of that, which, by the way, 
none of that has any positive incentive effect rewarding it. You know, people think that there's no positive incentive effect rewarding luck in the genetic lottery. You can't change your genetic endowment, right? You can't work to make your... So what can you, what can you remunerate? Well, it seems to me you can or remunerate how long people work, how hard they work, and the onerousness of the conditions under which they work, mm -hmm. period. And if you remunerate those things, you're remunerating exactly what people have control over, and therefore there's the incentive effect that you're looking for, or that people yeah, should be looking for. Clarify, by the way, you, you just used this phrase, tools lottery. Uh, can, you, can you tell us one more time well, what you mean by that? Suppose... Suppose the two of us go out to cut cut some kind of sugar cane or something, and you've got this fantastic scythe, and I've got a scissor, <laughs> mm -hmm. and so you you produce it. You know, uh, I can't I'm not sure what your screen captures, but you produce this much, and I produce this much. Yeah. But we're in the under the same sun. We're working the same duration, and we're working the same hardness. Right. Should you get twice as much income because you have a better tool? That's the kind of idea. Now, does the economy want to? generate good tools yes but you don't have to do that by rewarding the people who are using them there are other ways to accomplish that goal which is a good goal right then enriching people just because they happen to be lucky using one or the same thing with uh, say uh being a surgeon and saving lives i mean how much more value can you generate in three hours than mm -hmm. saving a human life right so right. So the, the value that, that the surgeon, while doing surgery, even if we have balanced job complexes, still, there are people doing surgery, the value that they're generating is enormous. And if they're getting remunerated for that, their income will be much higher. And what Robin and I are saying is, no, that's not right. What they should get remunerated for is duration, intensity, and onerousness. Uh, and um, the, the fact that the, the product is valued is essential. But the fact that it's valued is not part of what goes into determining their income. It's, it's not, their income isn't in proportion to the valuation of their product. And that's yeah. very unusual, uh, but I think it's ethically right and it's economically right in terms of incentives. Yeah, uh, so uh, just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a footnote, but just because it's a point of interest uh, in uh, this, uh, in the uh, in the critique of the goth program, Marx does make both criticisms. You know, there's the criticism about you know money going you know being needed for for new investment uh, and common needs like healthcare and education. Uh, but he also says oh, it's interesting. Yeah. But he also sure. says that um, rewarding people for um, uh, you know rewarding people in proportion to what they put in uh, recognize no class difference because everyone is a worker like everyone else but it tacitly recognizes unequal individual endowment and thus productive capacity as a natural privilege. So, um, so I, I think he does have the same, um, you know, it's, it's a sort of, it's a sort of point made very quickly in passing, but I think he does have the same. Well, but I'm, I'm impressed on two counts. I'm impressed that you knew it and caught it and I'm impressed that he said it. And, uh, it's helpful so, so, because it helps what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. So, but, uh, but, but, but of course, Mark's, the downside of what Marx is saying in the critique of the goth program, which of course is one of the only times that he talks about yeah. uh, 
what a socialist society might look like. He's got this famous remark in uh, one of the introductions to uh, Capital about not, you know, bothering with writing recipes for the cookshops of the future. And of course, you are in the business of writing recipes for the cookshops of the future, which I like, you know, because because I think it's important for all the reasons you said earlier. So uh, I, I do want to make sure, uh, you know, there are a lot of different facets of this that you know that, that we could that we could dwell on. Uh, but I I, I do want to make sure that we get to. Um, the allocation, you know, the allocation yeah. issue. So, so you sort of, you know, you sort of gone through the principle about, you know, uh, sort of deciding, you know, who who within a group is entitled to how much, you know, based, you know, and what the relationship is between that and what they, they put in. Uh, but in a more general sense, uh, like somebody, a lot of what you've said so far, somebody could be, you know, some kind of, um, you know, some kind of market socialist and agree with a lot of it. They could, you know, they, they could say you could, you, you could have, well, I mean, you, I mean, in, in principle it could, right. That you could have somebody, you could have somebody say, this is, you know, it's, it's out there in the logical space, whether or not anybody actually says it or not. Uh, you could have somebody say, Hey, okay. Balance, balance, balance job complexes. I understand the case for that. Uh, the, uh, having distribution, you know, uh, within it, not just be like, actually existing co-ops uh, like Mondragon where uh, wage scales are very egalitarian compared to normal businesses, but, you know, but there's still, they still pretty much work, you know, like, like they're still, um, you know, they're not anything like what you're, you know, what you're talking about. It's, it's still much closer to the way normal businesses assign wages. So I can understand having some sort of principle about how you distribute, you know, um, about who gets what wages within a cooperative that would be that would be purely about duration and intensity of labor. Again, maybe they don't say this, but they could say this. But where you but the fundamental place where you disagree with this person that I'm describing uh, is about how it is like what the basic mechanism is for coordinating what's produced uh, with with consumption needs because. Um, because a market socialist, like a market anybody, right, says that the the basic mechanism for accomplishing that uh, is uh, is market pressures, uh, and that's not the basic mechanism uh, that that you want. Uh, and and so I was I was hoping that you know before we kind of get to the point where we answer some audience questions, uh, that that you kind of take us through what's the what's what's the basic mechanism for deciding what gets produced and, you know, and, and how that's, you know, how that's linked to consumer preferences okay. in the society. Okay. Um, three sentences first to agree sure. with something that you said market, sure. Mark said. Um, I actually agree with the point of view that we should not be creating, uh, I call it blueprints mm -hmm. for the future. Um, I think our agenda has to be both morally and strategically to address, to, to think through what set of institutions are necessary and sufficient so that people in the future can decide their own circumstances, right? It's not for us to spell out everything in a blueprint, but it is for us to create the situation in which future people, hopefully not too far in the future, are self-managing themselves, not according to our our preconceived notions, but according to what they are learning and their experience and their circumstances. Okay, so for, so why do we have to even talk about allocation, given that that limitation on what we should talk about? And the answer, I think, is the same as for the division of labor and for 
ownership relations. Own, you know, getting rid of ownership relations is a precondition for people in the future to be self-managing. Getting rid of the division of labor is a precondition for that. Uh, I wouldn't say that the remuneration norm is a precondition for that, but it certainly is an additional ethical injunction. But then we come to the allocation system. Well, why can't we use either markets or central planning? Right. So, so that comes as a first question, and because there's no point in trying to think up something new if one of them is okay. I mean, I agree with that. You know, don't 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 look for a solution where none is needed. But I think one is needed. Um, you seem more concerned about markets, so I'll spend two seconds on central sure. planning. Um, central planning is not okay because central planning is authoritarian by its intrinsic definition. And because central planning creates the class division, of course, going into central planning from capitalism, it already, the class division already exists and the coordinator class is simply elevated into the dominant position. But central planning creates that because central planners are giving orders and expecting to be obeyed and they have to legitimate their authority, which they do with their so-called astuteness and intelligence and whatever with their education and inside the workplaces they don't want to negotiate central planning with workers councils of filled up with workers who are confident and aware and are going to battle them they want to work with managers and with heads of heads of firms so the the whole structure sort of reproduces um the coordinated class division. I think markets do the same thing, but it's a subtle, it's, it's a different manner that they do it. Um, this is aside from the fact that markets produce rampant individualism because that's the way you get ahead in a market system. So it's perfectly rational to behave in such a fashion. In fact, you almost have no choice, right? You can't go into the store and pick something up to buy and be concerned about the well-being of the person who produced it. I mean, that's just insane. Nobody does that. You're concerned about whether the item meets your needs, so you buy it. So it produces individualism that we see all around us, a kind of a rat race society. So that's a problem with markets. Even if you get rid of private ownership, that's still a problem with markets. Even if you had balanced job complexes, that would be a problem with markets. But here's why you won't have that, I think. Um, in a market system, each firm has to compete. If a firm uh, competes horribly, competes poorly, it goes out of business. And its workforce, even if they're organized in a workers' council, even if they have democratic rights or even self-managing rights, is screwed because their income drops to nothing, right? So, so they have a need to compete. Now, inside of a workplace, competition generally means certain things. It means reducing in this case, the benefits that are going to workers, keeping those benefits for marketing, for uh, uh, certain kinds of innovation, etc. It certainly precludes, if nobody else is doing it, right, mm. spending your income on daycare, on air conditioning for everybody, on, uh, uh, you know, considering whether you really want that assembly line or whether you want to reorganize work, etc. Um, it precludes all that because you're competing with other firms. And now how do you do that? Do you ask as a firm, what do you do? Do you have 
workers make the decision to screw themselves, well, we'd be terrible about that, that decision, right? Working people are not going to be good at cutting off their own air conditioning, at allowing the fumes to flow through the factory, at speed up, at, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to be good at making those decisions. So what we need to do is to shield some people from the implications of the decisions that they're making. And we have to find people who are willing to do that. So we go to the business school and we hire uh, people who have been trained for 15 years um, or 18 years, right, to have a an elitist, domineering, I'm superior attitude and to understand how to extract wealth from a workforce. And so in Yugoslavia, which had markets and which got rid of private ownership, again, we find that the workplaces look pretty much the same as they did in the Soviet Union. And it's not because it's in, it's written in. In Yugoslavia, the constitution said workers control the workplaces. That was true also in the Soviet Union. It didn't make any difference, right? It, it made no difference because the structure in one case markets and in the other case central planning, and in both cases the division of labor, which would have done it anyhow, um, imposed the outcome. Okay, so I don't like, there's one other problem, there are actually more, but we won't do many. But markets, there's another problem with the argument that you made about, well, somebody could accept the balanced job complexes with markets. I just tried to make a suggestion that that can't happen, that markets, markets would subvert such a desire and have over and over. But the other, the other point was, well, you could remunerate in a more equitable way inside of, a, inside of firms in a market economy. And the problem with that, right-wingers point out, they point out that if you re remove um, wages from market determination, you're, you're sort of subverting all prices, right? that are based upon wages. So everything is getting distorted and markets are no longer doing what the idealized notion of markets can accomplish. So that's the second problem. And the third problem is arguably the biggest, that markets fuck up the ecology, that markets create a tremendous incentive to dump stuff, to pollute, et cetera, et cetera, because you can make profits off that, your firm can be successful off that. So you might argue, uh, rightly, I think, that you can put constraints on markets, that you can moderate these ill effects, um, and you can, but you can't eliminate them. It's like putting constraints on private ownership or putting constraints on anything horrendous. It's still there. It's still percolating to try and get its way, and it typically does. So anyway, this led Robin and I to, you know, this is a bit abbreviated, but it basically led Robin and I to, uh, to feel that we actually need a new, a new mode of a new way of allocating. Now, at the time, there was a guy named Alec Nove. Do you do you know his name? Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. So he argued at the time. This is at around the same time, roughly speaking. He argued, look, there really is only markets and central planning. Those are our options, and now let's to discuss let's discuss which one we want. And for Robin and I, that was sort of like a parent saying to a kid, you know, there's only A and B, and the kid notices, wait a minute, what about C? I want C. Where's C? And the parent says A or B. And so Nov was saying markets are central planning, and he didn't 
there's no evidence of it. There's no proof of it. There's no argument that it's impossible to do anything else. It's simply an assertion. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about what the something else is. Okay, What's so the here's other the other thing. Okay, so we've said we have workers' councils and consumers. Yeah. Okay, so now um, what what has to happen is a communication between them, like you pointed out earlier. There, there has to be, I mean, if there isn't, it's chaos, right? So there mm -hmm. has to be a dynamic. And if it's not markets and it's not central planning, what is it? So we thought, well, what if it was um, a process by which workers express what they want? This is roughly the way we started. Workers express what they want. Um, mm -hmm. That is what they want to produce, given the assets that they have at their disposal. Um, assets that they don't own, that it, you could think of it as they borrowed um, from, from society, um, but they're administering. And consumer, so they're, they're making a proposal about what their workplace is going to do. Now, how, how can they do this off the top of their head? Well, no, they're using last year's um, numbers for what they did. They're using trends in demand for what they did. Um, and they're using uh, some initial set of prices or estimates of what the valuation is. Now, what about the consumer side? Well, on the consumer side, the consumers are doing essentially the same thing. They are workers or they can't work and they have a full income, but in any case, they have an income, right? Each mm -hmm. of them. And so they have a budget and they can't consume beyond their budget, but uh, up to their budget, they can, they can make a consumption proposal. And that's basically a proposal about what they want to consume and added up for the consumers council. It's more of a collective proposal and added up across all of society. It's basically people saying what they want. And so, people saying what they're willing to offer. Now, these things aren't going to match. Right. right. And they shouldn't match. We don't want them to match right off because we want workers to be saying really what they want to do. Right. What they think would be good to do, what they think. And we want consumers to say what they would like to get. Now, they both know that, you know, pie in the sky is silly, but they shouldn't be so trying to accommodate the final result that they're not saying what they want. So they're going to be different. Supply is going to be less than demand. I mean, yeah, supply is going to be less than demand mm -hmm. at the beginning. Okay. So now what can the next step be? It would have to be some process, again, by which the supply proposals, the workers' proposals, are conveyed. The consumers' proposals are conveyed. Conveyed where? Well, the workers' proposals have to be conveyed to the consumers. The consumers' proposals have to be conveyed to the workers. And in between, it's nice, it's actually not essential, but it facilitates things to have what we call a iteration facilitation board. It's probably a bad name. Uh, iteration, one round of planning after another after another, that's iterations. So, it, so, you're, so you've got some kind of complex negotiation between uh, the workers' councils and the, and the consumer councils. Um, here, here's where it gets a little tricky. You could, right? Okay. So you might. So a participatory economy might include. Um, f first, it would include the process. So the process is the workers all make a proposal, the consumers make a proposal, the uh, proposals are looked at, and in light of various algorithms, it can even be done by automatically, right? There is a new estimate for prices and there is an indication of supply and demand of the, of the discrepancies and the proposal goes back to the workers and consumers. Nobody else is ever making a decision, right? Mm -hmm. And the workers in the workplace now modify their proposal, 
and the consumers modify their proposal. Now, why do they modify? They modify because part of participatory planning is you, you need to arrive at a plan. And when you arrive at your plan, it's because the proposals are accepted. And their proposals are accepted if, if the workers' proposals are socially responsible, they can be accepted. But if they're not, they won't be. And if the consumers' proposals are socially responsible, meaning they don't exceed their budget um, with, with the prices as they're emerging, right, then they can be accepted. Uh, and, I mean, uh, you know, there's details. But, but basically what's being said is if you do these rounds of, of activity, of proposals and responses, including um, reacting before the next round of proposals to the responses by changing the indicative prices, it's called by economists, the estimate of what final prices will be. Final prices is after you finish the whole thing um, to, to inform uh, people's next round of proposals. So you could do that. And I think we've pretty much proved that you can do that without intervention and without discussion um, and still arrive at a plan Right, yeah, you have discussion inside the workers' council and inside the consumers' council, but without, you know, endless meetings or anything like that. And and you arrive at a plan, and and when the plan is arrived at, the activities of the workplaces are in fact socially responsible. Uh, the social benefits equal the social costs, but in, in any case, you know, there there's more details, but okay. So, so, so this, so this is all about the process by which the plans that the workers' councils come up with, and the plans that the consumers' councils come up with. That's the most that, streamlined process. You don't have that, to do that. You could change it some, but that's the most streamlined, I guess, simple and so, non non debating, non discussing process. Yeah. So. Um, do have a couple of questions about this. Also, want to uh, bring our producer Forrest on because I know there's at least one question from uh, from the audience we wanted to to get to, and, and I think this would be a natural place to uh, uh, to throw it in. Uh, but uh, but before we we get to that question, let's let's just kind of um, you know when you're talking about you know cons like not individual consumers, but you know consumer councils coming up with. Um, you know, with his plans, uh, then I guess one obvious question is, all right, so I am a consumer in the society. Um, you know, who else is in this consumer council with me and how much do I have to, uh, like, like how much do I have to inform people however long the plan is for a year in advance, maybe, uh, how, how much, how much do I have to know at that point? How much do I have to tell them? How much do I have to get other people to go along with? Uh, whatever I, you know, whatever I consume, you know, I want to consume for the next year, because I think this is, uh, I think this is like an obvious place that somebody could have, sure. have, have a, have a worry about this because, you know, you, you sort of go with that, like Michael Walzer phrase about like how one of the ways of understanding the ethical case for socialism is to say what touches all should be decided by all. But the converse of that would presumably be that, you know, what, you know, what touches, what doesn't touch other people, right. You know, shouldn't be, uh, just you know, decided right. by other people that we think if if what I'm consuming or not consuming isn't really hurting anybody, it's not really you know it's it's not and really shouldn't be up to anyone else. Right. It, it it certainly shouldn't be decided by anybody else. It does affect people. If I if I consume X, what goes into X 
is not being used for anything else, including something that you might want. So people are affected, you know, that's true, but marginally so, smallly so, although in some, considerably so. So a real an allocation system that sort of meets our values would have to convey to that to the, the the whole array of people affected, right? The influence that's proportional, what we call self-management, is you have a say in decisions and proportional to the degree you're affected. Mm-hmm. So each person would have a very low say regarding your a very low influence regarding whether you want to get a shirt or not, mm-hmm. uh, or whatever it might be. But altogether, there is some impact. Well, the impact of them all together is conveyed through through the price which is changing during the planning process and which is affecting my choice of whether or not to get a shirt. But the thing that you were asking before that was there's, there's my individual consumption and I'm not consulting anybody about that, right? That I, I'm just making a proposal for what I want to consume. And it's not a proposal for every single item I want to pursue because most things are categories, right? I don't have to say what size shirt I want. I don't have to say what kind of shirt I want. Nothing like that. Just shirts. Um, whatever it turns out to be, it's going to be categories because, you know, statistical rules tell us, tell the workers what to do. It's, that's the same as now, right? That's exactly <laughs> – I saw that too. Um, that's the same as now. Looks fine to me. Uh, that's the same as now. Um, uh you know, uh, somebody said that uh, Amazon has millions of products. Mm-hmm. So how, how the hell do they do what they're doing? Well, a lot of it is sort of statistical, right? They, they know if the demand is X for a kind, a category, they know roughly what everything will be under that category. And they're not always right. And neither would participatory economics be always right. But the point is, you're right about the collective goods, though. So uh, in a consumer council, if, the, if it's a neighborhood, and it would typically be different levels, right? And so in other words, there's the individual, there's the family, um, and then there's probably the neighborhood. I mean, this is all in the future, but sure. I would imagine, you can guess, there would be a neighborhood, and then there'd be a larger, uh, which is basically a federation of the councils within it, right? And so on. And... Uh, you know, for collective goods that are consumed fundamentally by some array of people, that's the array of, of councils that would be involved in proposing it. It takes away from your individual budget, right? So in other words, you're, let's take, you know, 10,000 people in some county or something. And let's say we all have average income. Mm-hmm. So we have 10,000 times the average income. And then we mm-hmm. decide to put in a pool, a giant pool. Okay, so now we have, we don't have the average income for our own individual consumption because we've just used, all of us have used some of it for the collective consumption. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that works. And uh, uh, so, so, so the question ultimately becomes, yeah. I think, uh-huh. can this approach with, with variation, so for instance, one kind of variation is when when proposals sharply deviate, I think this makes sense. Um, Robin doesn't so much. When, when proposals sharply deviate, instead of just proceeding through the pretty mechanical formulation of planning that I described, uh-huh. we could have the court, we could have the uh, 
the workers' councils or the industry council, it would more often be, right? Um, ask, what the hell is the reason for that? And if it turned out that there was a really good reason for this really odd change, right? The thing, the, the, the new proposal by the workers would move faster than it would move in the absence of that, of that information. See what I'm saying? And so you could have more or less of that. Um, you, you, you can sure, imagine sure, doing sure. this. So, 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 I mean, all, yeah. So, I mean, everything you're saying right now is about how the, how the plans are coordinated with, you know, with each other, you know, to, uh, to arrive at the, uh, at the final plan. Uh, but one, like, like one just really basic question. All right. So you said there, there are still, uh, there's still probably, you know, you're talking about prices. So there's, there's still currency, something like currency. It could all be cyber, but it, this could have been done a hundred years ago, and it would be currency. Okay, uh, but in as part of the initial consumer plans, you know, in my neighborhood, you know, consumer council, for example, uh, I I don't have to decide in advance, you know, the uh, the shirts I want for that year, but I, I do have to say I want such and such budget for shirts, something like that. Well, you you propose that, and at the end of the planning period, that's what you planned. But now you don't have to stick to what you did, right? Why not? Well, because lots of people aren't going to stick. Some are going to go up and some are going to go down. Some are going to switch this way. Some are going to switch that way. A lot will average out and cause no problem. But let's say that, I don't know, uh, something occurs which causes a shift from what was planned to wanting much more of something. Okay, so you accommodate that. Uh, the the workers' federation has to accommodate that. That requires more inputs, et cetera, et cetera. But the prices of all this stuff are um, determined by the plan, and the decision to do it is determined by the people. There is no there's no owner. There's there's also no coordinator class, right? It's not a market. A lot of people will say, well, but Michael, this is this is a market, isn't it? No, because the, the actors in this are not bartering with each other with bargaining power, right? They're making proposals and making decisions. And what's more, we claim, um, hadn't been proved yet. Well, we think it has been proved, but it certainly hasn't been agreed to as yet, that the prices that emerge from this kind of participatory planning system right, can reflect not only consumer preferences and not only worker preferences, uh, but ecological effects, but externalities. Um, and now it's another layer of the planning process, but you can actually incorporate and account for the ecological and social effects of activities and not just the personal effects. Um, and that's a gigantic difference. Uh, Okay. It's probably so, the difference between living and dying, but okay. All right. So, uh, Forrest, I uh, want to give us the uh, audience question, which, which I think was one that um, that I, I think there was at least in a in a glancing way, you know, Michael touched on a little bit earlier, but you know, but yeah. it, it's one of the most common questions. All right. So, uh, will too many meetings be a thing under Paracon or any form of socialism? And is, is this a legitimate criticism? And it comes back to that uh, discussion you had last week with Thaddeus Russell, where he was saying that too many meetings was his big problem with socialism. Ah, yeah. Um, okay, so that, remember I said a little while ago, you could have the streamlined version of the planning, 
or you could have a version of the planning which incorporates a degree of qualitative exchange of information, not prices and requests, but qualitative information behind that. Well, that's an example of one of the ways that you could have more or less meeting time. Now, the thing is, in participatory uh, economics, the work of planning is work. It's part of your job for everyone. So it's not as if what you're doing is piling on top of your workload, right? Um, that kind of activity. There's something very striking about, it's a little like what we said earlier, uh, you know, if you have to chain more doctors, isn't that a sort of a problem? Well, viewed one way it is, but then viewed another way, it's releasing the capacities and the abilities of 80% of the population. Um, so it's not a problem. And also, it depends what you value, right? So if, if we value solidarity, for example, if we value human participation, even if it did take longer, right, to do participatory planning than it takes to function in a market system, let's say, uh, uh, this would be a price I would be willing to pay, that extra time for solidarity, for classlessness, for equity, and so on. But I don't think it does take longer because a lot of things also are diminished, right? A lot of things that take time are reduced. So, for instance, class struggle is reduced. Um, struggling to get by is eliminated. Uh, um you know, the IRS, uh, you know, these kinds of things are no longer functional in a participatory society. So you see that many things are removed and some things are added. And if we pay attention to both, um, we get a, a fuller picture. But anyway, I, you could do participatory economics with the only meetings being, the only economically related meetings being, um, except in the case of a crisis like, say, COVID. Mm -hmm. um, the only meetings would be sort of uh, workers uh, at the beginning of the year deciding the, um, the, the definition of the jobs in their workplaces to have balanced job complexes. And workers uh, uh, apportioning income. Um, we didn't talk much about how you actually do that, how you actually receive income for duration, intensity, and onerousness. Uh, but essentially no meetings for, um, you could literally have no meetings uh, for planning. You could literally have each worker in the workplace enter their own personal preference, right? The way I described it. And likewise for all the consumers and the workers' preferences would become over time with the planning process and not that long either, a plan for the factory and the consumers would become a plan for the community. But okay. it's, it's a ridiculous well, it's choice, really I think. You should have talking inside the workers' council and you should have talking inside the consumers. Um, well, 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 yeah, because I, I think if, if you don't have talking, I'm, I'm a little unclear. Like, so if, if the, like, it, like if there's no talking within, you know, if there are no meetings uh, to decide, you know, to, to decide what the total, the, Neighborhood consumption, you know, council uh, proposal is for then... the collective one. You absolutely have to have it. Okay, I, I agree. Um, so, and 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 not even just for for collective needs, like you know, building the new you know swing for the playground or whatever, but uh, but also uh, but also even like you know, you you said earlier that you know people are allowed to you know input into things to the effect extent that it affects them. 
uh, you know, consumption requests, individual consumption requests do affect other people a little bit uh, because, because they don't, you know, because things are used, resources are used to produce those things that could be used to produce other things. So I, I think this both gets at the, uh, the, the too many meetings worry and also at the, um, at a kind of like privacy and individual autonomy worry uh, that, you know, to, to what, ex you know, to what extent are, uh, are, you know, my neighbors, um, you know, sort of in a position to, uh, to, you know, express, you know, express opinions, uh, you know, this, this is a pretty cheap shirt, but you know, in that, you know, in, <laughs> in this hypothetical, right. You know, that's like, I mean, it's, you know. it's, it's, it's like, man, Ben is asking for, for a lot, you know, for a big shirt, you know, shirt budget here. That that's like more than he really needs for shirts. Uh, but, that would have, okay. but take a different case, take a different okay. case. Suppose, first of all, you could have all the proposals be anonymous, right? So that just disappears it, right? There's, there's no particular reason why the proposals have to be attached to a name. But suppose we did attach them to a name, some participatory economy and some country attaches them to a name. So you make a proposal, not for a lot of shirts, that wouldn't, uh, you know, that's not going to even raise any eyebrows, but for, um, you know, uh, um, a lot of weapons or even a ridiculous amount of alcohol, mm -hmm. right? Um, something, something which truly does have potentially, one doesn't mm -hmm. know what the reason is yet, but potentially um, a bad side uh, mm -hmm. and a side that affects others. Well, under those circumstances, I think it's perfectly reasonable that the community gets to ask, why the fuck are you ordering a tank or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is yeah, well, so, and so, can so, intervene. So I, I, I get, I get, I mean, I'm with you on the tank, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do, but I think the alcohol example is interesting uh, because uh, it, you know, I mean, if the suggestion is, is that, you know, I mean, I understand uh you know, once once you spill over into uh, into alcoholism, you know, then then you could have like legitimate community interventions. But but look, uh, there is wild discrepancies uh, between different groups of people right. about what they would consider right. to be a ridiculous amount of, of alcohol. Course. Of course. And so, but first of all, remember we're talking about people not now. We're talking about people in a society that's classless and mm -hmm. that. And where everybody has has training and circumstances which empower them, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's a factor. But the other okay. factor and is even among middle just, class people, there there yeah, are well, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I agree. I agree. Uh, but but there's no reason why you can't have uh, rules, laws, right? Just like we do now, right? Except that they would hopefully be better, right? So you can have you know standards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, that that have to be abided, so to speak. That's an interesting thing about participatory econ economics. The political system making a rule. Y you can't uh, kill um, uh, deer, or okay. or um, you can't buy a gun uh, mm -hmm. or a tank or whatever the rule happens to be. If the population passes a rule it in no way distorts the behavior of the economy. Right? How would it, wait, how would the rules be decided upon? Like directly well, through direct political system. or, but, but I mean, those things are kind of linked together. I'm, I'm just yeah. curious because that wasn't clearly. So, so there's so, something called participatory politics that has been put forward. 
Um, you could invite Steve Shalom onto the phone onto the show at some point. He was the original sort of main author of that. It's not as developed in some sense, I suppose you could say, as participatory economics, but that's because economics is sort of simpler in some ways, and so you can pin it down more. But so, anyway, uh, so, his so, his so notion involves participatory. Uh, what? So so just to be clear, right? I mean, like, um, I mean, I actually so. I don't want to go down a huge rabbit hole about this right now, but is, uh, but, um, but I think even a lot of the aspects of, of participatory economics that you're describing do raise some questions about the state uh, because uh, you know, it, absolutely, it, yeah. Cause, cause, cause it seems like uh, like some of, you know, some of these rules uh, you know, you're, you're not, um, you know, on the face of it, you wouldn't think that you get universal buy-in, you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, even if you have very widespread popular democratic buy-in, it's not universal. Uh, and so there is, I mean, I could see saying that participatory economics could be combined with maybe like a plurality of possible political setups. Uh, but, you know, but, but there, but there is a question about like, do you have, uh, you know, do you have a big bureaucracy that's like, you know, making sure that like every, uh, well, that every individual workplace has balanced God job complexes, for example, that they're really meeting the, those requirements. And, and if you don't, right, how realistic is it to, to think that you're ending up with that? Okay. So there's two, there's two different um, ways of tackling the question that you're asking. One is during transition. I mean, that is, uh, this thing isn't deposited on earth by Zeus in finished form or whoever, right? In finished form. And so, yes, there's a period of time, we have no idea how long, during which there's a big struggle and uh, some workplaces are maybe participatory economic and some aren't and so on and so forth. And then there's a situation of when the system is established, which is a very different situation, I think, because when that situation arises, uh, pretty much everything is participatory economic in the economy. And uh, there won't be anybody who wants to or would even contemplate working in a workplace that was run by a person that was mm -hmm. owned by somebody. You, do, you wouldn't even have to outlaw it, right? Like you sort, you, you, you almost don't have to outlaw slavery now in the United States, right? It's not, because Why? Because who the fuck's gonna submit to that when you can, you know, be a wage slave? which is a hair better. Um, so, but in the transition period, I agree with you and I have no idea. That is to say, we can all hypothesize what kinds of uh, intermediate stages we go through. I mean, we have markets. They're not gonna disappear overnight, right? So participatory economics in the short run, I think would, if it was, adopted by people, if, if people felt it was valid and worthy, mm -hmm. it would lead to significant short run changes. Like for instance, suppose we're fighting for a higher minimum wage. Mm -hmm. um, what's What would be different about somebody who's an advocate of participatory economics fighting for that and somebody else who might fight for that? And I think the answer is the advocate of participatory economics would be trying to move via that process, not only to, a, establishing a new minimum wage, but also to raising desires for equitable remuneration. So imagine there was a campaign at, at a college campus for a minimum wage that would 
before, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the custodial staff, the people who clean up, et cetera, et cetera. Let's say they're being paid and maybe some other sectors of the workplace on the campus are being paid below minimum wage. So there's a $15 minimum wage campaign. Mm-hmm. Well, if I was part of that campaign, I would be fighting like hell to win it. But I would also be asking, why do the professors earn more than the people who clean up the room that the professors teach in? Mm-hmm. Right? And I would be asked and, and on and on with questions of that sort to try and cause it to be the case that when the campaign is won, people don't go home as if that's the end. That's all you can do. But instead, people now fight for $25 an hour, or they even fight to begin to change the structure. So the way this vision would help in the short run, I think, is by, on the one hand, allowing us to answer the question, what do you want, much more compellingly, and in a way that might inspire more hope and support simultaneously, and also helping to guide us in immediate campaigns in ways that would turn that would cause those campaigns to be consistent with trying to win a new new economy instead of consistent with just trying to reform this one um not just because we say we want a new economy but because we're we're pointing out along the way what it is that would be new what it is that would really matter um etc etc so to your question what role would the polity play in the short term well you know suppose so suppose sanders won mm-hmm. um so if sanders won and if as he made evident popular support was militant and aroused he could do a lot he could affect the distribution of wealth he could affect the attention to ecological concerns he could institute uh um laws and practices that would strengthen unions and strengthen workers organization and maybe in time workers councils and so on and so forth and that would all be terrific um and certainly something that i would i would advocate but but when you a revolution is changing the basic underlying defining institutions of society it's not violence or nonviolence. it's not fast or slow it's rather changing those basic institutions, those defining institutions. So for the economy, the change is no more private ownership, participatory planning instead of markets or central planning, balanced job taxes instead of corporate division of labor and equitable remuneration. Or at least that's what we're saying it ought to be. We think that's enough and would accomplish the goal of a classless, desirable, worthy economy. So then if you have a vision for polity, for political system, and you have a vision for, let's call it kinship, um, the way people live in their private lives and, and the, the formation of, of education and so on and so forth, and you have a vision for culture and for community relations among, among different communities, like race and ethnicity and so on, then you have a vision for all of society. And if we had that, I think it would enable us to have movements that aren't siloed, and that aren't that fight for reforms, but are not reformist, um, because they're trying to change the whole society. Um, I guess I guess my concern would be how do you uh, get those things to be separate? Like, if there's if there's a like how do you get those things to be 
separate. Like if there's a political system that's somehow completely separate from a participatory economic system, I I don't like I don't to I mean I guess this is more of a hypothetical thing, but how to stop the state from kind of slowly pushing back into the economy over time. But it's it's not separate completely. Um all right, so the political system is what? It's legislation, rulemaking, lawmaking. It's what's called the executive part. So the CDC, uh, the Center for Disease Control, that's part of the of the government. That's the executive, and so is the police, and so on and so forth. Sure. That's executive, and there's judicial, right? There's So those functions are different from production, allocation, and consumption, which is the economy. Um, but But they're not separate in a different sense, which is that, the, the political system includes jobs, and they would be balanced, and it includes remuneration, and it would be equitable. And to the extent that it uses inputs and outputs, it would be part of participatory planning. And uh, there's no, there's a sense in which, I mean, your question is incredibly powerful in the sense that each of these things could be viewed separately. But in a very real sense, they're each schools for the other or against the other. In other words, if we did, you're right, um, a good economy and we leave the political system and we leave, you know, structural racism and we leave patriarchy, then those systems are going to militate against the economy and vice versa. Because after all, this economy is certainly not going to treat women differently than men. Or I, I mean, it doesn't even have a concept that will allow that. Right. Because there are no positions that. Right. So it's just. But it would be at odds. Right. They would be at odds. And if the state was some kind of dictatorial mess or something, that would be at odds also. So it is a, a comprehensive change. Um, and that's why I think ultimately we need. You need vision for all of us that will allow us to have movements that are defined ultimately by the whole that that whole desired new society in which people might focus on race or on class or on gender because it affects them the most or it just interests them the most or something but it would be one big movement that elevates all those things to comparable importance actually to equal importance there's no reason to hierarchicalize them in any way at all. Uh, and that would overcome some of our problems too. Uh, all right. the, the, the quick picture of the political system isn't hard, I don't think. It's basically um, uh, assemblies, which could be the consumer councils could double as an assembly, right? Um, which are federated upwards. If you had uh, uh, if you had 20 people in each assembly at every level, this is going to probably be hard to believe without doing the math, seven or eight levels are enough to cover the whole population, right? Um, where it's federated to the top, and then you can have dynamics for how stuff is decided, either at the base of it or at a different level of it with, with representatives and so on and so forth. I don't want to go through it all. It wasn't our big topic. But you can think about it and come up with stuff. Um, Sometimes yeah. people ask, "Would you have police?" Yeah, right? a good. And question. then they go, and then they go berserk when I say yes. That is to say, the function, the valuable function, not the crappy functions, the valuable function of intervening and aiding 
in cases of, um, you know, violation of society, violation of people's lives, is a real function. And it's a function that when people say, well, all right, so then let's let everybody do that. Everybody will police. Well, nobody says everybody should be airplane pilots. Why not? Because you can't teach everybody to be an airplane pilot. Well, police, whatever you want to call them, the people who are doing this function need to be very well trained and they need to be um, overseen and they need to have community control, whatever all the things are that it's decided are, are needed. Um, uh, but but the, the solution isn't to say, well, Hannibal Lecter won't exist, right? Nobody will do any of this kind of stuff. Yeah, Nobody right. will get drunk and beat up anybody else. Very, Nobody very convenient to just... I, it's, yeah, it's like assume... Help yourself to the assumption that none of that will happen. Exactly. Assume everybody's perfect, and now let's describe a, a society. Well, it gets pretty easy when you when you assume away every conceivable problem. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm still firmly with you on the uh, on that last part. Yeah. Um, although I guess I guess to uh, I guess to be clear, right? The uh, there would there would be people who'd be trained to do this, but they'd still have to spend part of their day uh, sweeping up the police yeah. stations for the balanced uh, yeah. job complex. And their income would be equitable. Fair enough. All right. Uh, thank you, Michael. We could go on and on and on, uh, and, uh, and and we could do several days of this pretty happily. But uh, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll we'll call it there. Uh, we'll call it there for tonight. Okay. Uh, so uh, this is uh, Michael Albert, who is the uh, the author, uh, among several other things, of uh, Paracon: uh, uh, Life uh, Life After uh, Life After Capitalism. Uh, is there uh, is there anything else? Uh, you yeah. Can I yep. do a little plug? Please, please. Yep. Okay, thanks. Uh, I work at Znet, which I helped found, so that it would be nice if people want to take a look at that. You can find out more about the kinds of things I'm saying. But also, I do a podcast huh, called Revolution Z, and it's very much about vision and strategy, all kinds of vision, all kinds of strategy. There's a lot of participatory economics, but there's also a lot of other stuff. And, uh, you know, that might be something worth listening to. It's... Uh, you can find it by going to Znet, um, uh, and uh, there's links to it, etc. And it's on all the, it's on Apple and Spotify and all the rest of the things. All right, very good. All right, well, uh, thank you so much, Michael. That's remarkable the way he does that so fast. <laughs> <laughs> all right, special skills. All right, talk to you soon. Okay, thanks a lot. All right. Uh, that was uh, was Michael Albert uh, from uh, from Znet uh, and the uh, the author of Paracon and in uh, various other books, uh, giving us some of those uh, recipes for uh, for the cook shops of the future, uh, which 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 I have to say, uh, you know, even though the uh, the part about the um, uh, you know the part about other people in, in, in my neighborhood getting to uh, regulate my alcohol consumption made me a little nervous, but you know, I think there are a lot of interesting ideas there. <laughs> um, but um, I guess I guess one thing is it would incentivize people to uh, I guess move to more liberal in the sense of tolerant neighborhoods than right, right, right. In, in, in the current moment because you wouldn't want to live in a puritanical neighborhood in, in that society. Right. Uh so um David uh, hey. what, uh what neighborhood are you in right now? 
Uh, I'm back in the East Coast uh, for a couple months before I pack everything up and uh, ship on down to Texas. Oh, yeah, right. I recognize the poster behind you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How are you all doing? Ah, uh, we, uh, yeah, I think, I think we're pretty, uh, you know, we're pretty good. I spent a good, um, uh, I think I spent a good hour, uh, yesterday. So, uh, yeah, I had to go do a curbside pickup, uh, grocery, uh, you know, like grocery mm-hmm. pickup and, uh, and literally it, it took about an hour to, uh, to dig the car out so I could like, I could get oh, out Jesus, of the driveway. Yeah. That was so ridiculous up here right now. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's how I'm doing. Couldn't be me, man. I got to say, good on you. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, so for uh, Outlaws and uh, and Revolutionaries this week, uh, we are uh, going to uh, to talk about this dude who is uh, who's a little bit of, uh, of each of them. And I think we can get away with this uh, with uh, copyright. This is just the spoken word introduction. So let's uh, let's do this. Oh, hell yeah. Well, down in Nicaragua, the Sandinistas finally overthrew the... uh, brutal dictatorship of Somoza, who was supported for some 30 years by the United States again. And uh, at the celebration of of their victory after the United States started responding to that by mining roads and killing farmers and blowing up hospitals and schools full of children, But the Sandinistas were victorious and stood up to the United States and stood them down. And Daniel Ortega, the president, asked me to sing this song at their celebration. And I'll sing it for you. All right. And we really do need to cut off there or else YouTube is going to get upset. But (laughs) uh, tell us about this guy. Oh, man. I mean, that's such a great introduction to Chris Christopherson and um, I'm really happy to be able to talk about him. One, just because it's music, and two, actually, I really don't think people, uh, at least in my generation, realize how much of a political radical he was. But uh, you know, that introduction right there uh, really hits at it. But you know, Chris Christopherson is when you think country music, you have to think Chris. I mean, he was definitely one of the greats. Uh, you know, good friends with all of the you know the characters that we know and love, Waylon Jennings. Johnny Cash, you know, he was one of the people watching John Prine as John Prine was just sort of making a name for himself. Um, Just the real deal, really embedded into country music. Um, But, you know, his life is real interesting. Uh, He was born in Brownsville, Texas. Uh, Dad was of uh, Swedish descent. And his daddy was actually a member of the U.S. Army Air Corps. So he traveled around a lot as a young young man. Um, He went to college in California. And this is a rare thing in country music, but uh, he actually ended up earning a Rhodes Scholarship. Uh, so he went to Oxford <laughs> to study literature. Uh, w- when he was in Oxford, he was a champion boxer. Uh, he wanted to be a novelist. Um, 
they tried to get going to music in the UK, actually. Something like, oh man, I can't remember the name of it, like a Yank Abroad or something like that uh, was the name of his outfit, but it never <laughs> didn't really take off. Uh, um, so after that, he joins the army and he was a helicopter pilot, served in Germany. And after his tour ended, he got an assignment to teach English at West Point, but he turned it down. And his daddy and his mother disowned him for it because being in the military was such a big part of that family ethos that they felt it was just unforgivable that their son would turn his back on the military. Um, you know, so that's just like, you know, part of his background that he lived all over uh, the country and also in the Pacific too, as a young man, you know, so we saw a lot of different things, but before we get too wrapped up in the story, like the man could just write a song. Uh, one of his really famous songs is a song called Bobby McGee. Um, or the chorus, I just love it so much, is uh, freedom's just another word for nothing less left to lose. Nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free. <laughs> Feeling good was easy. Lord, when Bobby sang the blues, Feeling good was good enough for me. Uh, good enough for me and Bobby McGee. And for people who are familiar with that song, because that's one of his most famous ones, they might not know that you know Bobby McGee is a woman. <laughs> um, and it's a kind of gender neutral name, which is why it's been uh, covered by so many different artists. But it's a, <laughs> it was one of those songs where he actually got the call from one of his, uh, his agents just like in the middle of the night, like I have a song uh, and I think the hook needs to be a love song named somebody Bobby McGee. But then later in the song, you realize that it's a woman. <laughs> and then he wrote the song afterwards. But, um, you know, so after, after working in, uh, uh, in the military, uh, he went to Nashville trying to make it as a singer-songwriter. Um, wasn't making any money whatsoever. So he took a gig with the National Guard. And he started flying helicopters uh, to oil rigs up and through South Louisiana, where he wrote a lot of these songs that later made him famous. Um, you know, But he was in the scene. He was playing at different clubs and stuff. And he was always trying to make a name for himself. And one of his main targets was you know, the great uh, Johnny Cash, who Chris had met several times and he would hand his demos to. And according to Johnny Cash, Johnny would just throw him in the river, just throw him in the trash. Like, what's it going to, I'm sure he was getting, you know, hundreds of tapes from random strangers on the street all the time. Um, but Chris didn't give up. And uh, one day uh, when he was doing training, uh, flying his helicopter around, uh, he flew his helicopter and landed it in the front lawn of Johnny Cash's house <laughs> parks, the helicopter gets out and hands him a demo and says, God damn it. You got to listen to this song. <laughs> um, which Johnny ended up doing. And uh, he ended up seeing uh, this song that brought uh, Chris Christopherson to, to fame, which is Sunday morning coming down, which is if you're a drinker, this is a song that you will relate relate to deeply. Um, it's basically a song about walking around town Sunday morning <laughs> Walking around, there's no way to hold your head that doesn't hurt. Uh, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> um, you know, just sort of trying to find some peace for yourself. And like, here's a couple of lines from it. It's like, um, and then I crossed empty, I crossed empty street and caught the Sunday smell of someone frying chicken and took me back to something that I'd lost somehow somewhere along the way on the Sunday morning sidewalk, wishing Lord that I was stoned because there's something in a Sunday that makes a body feel alone. There ain't nothing short of dying. Half as lonesome as the sound on the sleeping little sidewalks Sunday morning coming down. And you can tell that one, he had a, <laughs> a wealth of experience, right. um, but also a really a, a writer's that's a writer's prose. Like yeah. he understood um, really deeply how to write a song to set a scene and to make you feel uh, the Sandinista song that Ben was playing earlier 
is a perfect example of that too. You know, Santa Nista, you can hold your head up high. You have given back their freedom. You have lived up to your name. Santa Nista, may your spirit never die. Hold the candle to the darkness. You're the keeper of the flame. <laughs> but it's just so, you know, it's just so awesome that he has this kind of radical background. It wasn't just the Santa Nistas um, either, you know, a big time fighter for um, and believer in the American Indian movement, longtime supporter of Leonard Peltier, along with uh, Willie Nelson. Um, some personal other favorite songs of his is To Beat the Devil. Um He's talked about sort of being down and out, trying to make money. He ends up in a bar. Uh, he says, my thirsty wanted whiskey, but my hunger wanted beans. It had been, been a month of paydays since I had heard the eagle scream. So with a s- stomach full of empty and a pocket full of dreams, I left my pride and stepped inside a bar. Actually, I guess you'd call it a tavern. And in that bar, he meets a, um, a character you later find out is the devil, um, who sings him a song about being a broke down uh, songwriter. <laughs> um and uh, ba- and basically, like the line from the devil's, like if you waste your time of talking to the people who don't listen to the things you are saying, who do you think is going to hear? And it's basically it's a song of like defeat and depression and giving, you know, saying like why are you wasting your time trying to convince people about their their condition? Um, and uh, Chris Christopherson ends up beating the devil by stealing a song and flipping the words um, by saying, and you can still hear me singing to the people who don't listen to the things that I am saying, praying someone's going to hear. And I guess I'll die explaining how the things that they complain about are the things they could be changing, hoping someone's going to care. Which I think is a really honestly important uh, message for today, man, because it's really easy to get down on yourself. And that's how a lot of people get cynical. I mean, I call it uh, on some of the streams I've done on left reckoning, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my show left pessimism where people who really feel and they want to change the world um, they get into this rut when they realize that people around them are rising up and, and changing, um, you know, doing all these kind of things. And I understand why people fall into that kind of depression, but you have to beat the devil in Chris Christopherson's words. You have to know that, like, you just got to be the guy who's keep on, you know, keep on fighting and trying to tell the truth. And eventually someone's going to hear. Um, anyways, before I get too somber, um, I also want to make sure I hit his country chops because uh, he has a song that's one of my favorite songs of all time. It's a really good country uh, music song called If You Don't Like Hank Williams. (laughs) Um, So the lines go, I love Big Johnny Cash, and I think Waylon Jennings is a table-thumping smash. Playing with Marshall Tucker Band was as good as smoking grass, but if you don't like Hank Williams, Sonny, you can kiss our ass. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a guy who who loves the music and the scene, also is a character of his own. And just to, to sort of close out, um, I don't know if I sent you this, Ben, but um, it was floating around this past week. Because uh, for people who might not be familiar, actually, there's this whole controversy in country music, uh, obviously regarding Donald Trump and you know whatever Trumpism is. But you know, all these morons and the people who run that system now, and the people who are big famous country singers, they are all like, "Oh, we don't play. We're, I'm just a guitar player. I don't think about politics," which is such BS when you talk about like the actual yeah. history of country music. But you know who does do a lot of um, political content is the country wives so like jason aldean his wife just got in trouble for posting a bunch of q stuff like all their country wives are getting in trouble uh, for posting these really insane donald trump memes uh, but anyway somebody posted uh this uh story told by ethan hawk that came out i think in 2009 or something like that 
um, in Rolling Stone. And like any good country story, it's, uh, you know, debated and, and whatever. I think some of the debaters are a little stupid. We'll get to that later. But anyways, this is Ethan Hawke uh, talking about a, a scene at Willie Nelson's, I think, 70th birthday party. Um, so up from the basement comes uh, one of country music's brightest stars, uh, who is Toby Keith. Uh, who, mm-hmm. if you're not familiar, is the one who's saying, you know, stick a boot up your ass is mm-hmm. the American way. That's my, uh, uh, my all-time favorite moron lyric, which is, I'm not a political man. I don't know the difference between Iraq and Iran. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is much more of a cell phone than I think that, than probably <laughs> Keith realizes. Anyway, um, happy birthday in the star. Toby Keith says to Willie, and and as he passes Chris Christopherson, who's standing next to Willie, uh, he says, uh, none of that lefty shit out there tonight, Chris. And Chris responds, says, uh, what the fuck did you just say to me? <laughs> oh, no, groans Willie under his breath. Don't get Chris all riled up. Uh, Toby Keith says, you heard me. And then Chris Christopherson, you know, he's in the military and stuff. You know, he wasn't in uh, Vietnam, which should be mentioned. But anyways, Chris Christopherson says, don't turn your back to me, boy. Star turns around and says, I just don't want any problems, Chris. I just want you to tone it down. And then Chris responds, you ever worn your country's uniform? What? Don't want me, boy. You heard the question. You just don't like the answer. Um, I asked, have you ever ever worn the uniform? Have you ever killed another man? Have you ever taken another man's life and then cashed the check your country gave you for doing it? No, you have not. So shut the fuck up. (laughs) You don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, Whatever um, Toby Keith says. And Ray Charles, who was there too, stood motionless. Willie Nelson looked at at Ethan and shrugged mischievously. Um, And then Chris uh, looked at the wall, looks over at Willie and says, don't say a word. Um, And then he looks at Ethan Hawke and he says a a quote. So this is the big uh, controversy about this because this is a country music quote that has been attributed to very many people and it's extremely vulgar. I don't know. Can I say it on the air? Okay. Um, But this has been attributed to a lot of different people. It's funny as hell. Um, But this is the kind of legend part of it. Um, But uh, Chris Christopherson looks to Ethan and he points at guys like Toby Keith and he says, they're doing to country music what pantyhose did to finger fucking. So <laughs> true or not, um, it's a good is a good yarn. And uh Chris Christopherson um is a is a man of legend for sure. Um Yeah, well and, and whatever. We know he had away with words, so we may well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sure I actually I have no doubt about it that him and Toby Keith had an altercation. I'm just curious if that embellishment is true or not. Um uh, but yeah, I mean Toby Keith really sucks. Anyways, Chris Christopherson, um, it is sort of funny out of all the people out of you know, the main, the country music, like the highway men, the outlaw country music. I think he's probably like the least known for his politics, which is sort of ironic to me, given the fact that he actually is probably the most radical out of any of them. Yeah. Right. No, it's, I mean, you, you certainly couldn't, I mean, as, as much as, uh, you know, obviously, you know, obviously Willie Nelson, you know, Johnny Cash, you know, there, there are, you know, we could talk about these people and, you know, various good causes they've supported and, you know, and their activism for native Americans. But I mean, Jesus Christ, that, uh, that like the opening to, to that, 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 you know, to that. <laughs> song, yeah. And like, he wasn't just like giving that to the world. I mean, he was like there singing it for those. I mean, that was, yeah, yeah, that recording was in Spain, yeah. but he had been to Nicaragua and like had sang for the Sandinistas, the Sandinista song. Uh, that's not a passive endorsement at all. <laughs> no, no, that's very true. Oh, uh, so what's, um, uh, so you're, you're a few couple episodes into uh, left reckoning now. 
Yeah, man. It's been going really well. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun. What's up, Vic? Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey. Um, yeah, it's been going really well. Um, I think uh, this week we're doing an in-depth interview with Milton Alamani. Nice, nice. Uh, on what's going on with Bobby Wan in Uganda. So it's going uh, to be a good one. So definitely check that out. Nice. Thursdays at 8. We're moving it to 8. We decide 8. Uh, 7 p.m. is a little too East Coast. So <laughs> right. <laughs> We want everyone to be able to watch live. Totally, so. totally. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Um, maybe I should uh, I should do that, although, <laughs> you know, this is already, like, you know, this already ends late enough that, you know, I do whatever so. else to do that night. You know, it already screws with my old man's sleep schedule. But, uh, <laughs> we start we start somewhere between 7.30 and 8. No, that's, that's <laughs> true. In practice, it's, it's a little closer to 8, but uh, <laughs> theoretically, it's, uh, it's 7.30. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, no, that's, uh, everybody should be, uh, should be watching that at, uh, at Thursdays, uh, Thursdays at eight. Uh, do you, uh, do you know yet, by the way, um, no worries if you don't, but, uh, do you, uh, do you know what you might want to cover next week? Um, maybe the highway, man. All right. All right. Let's, let's, let's put a, you yeah. know, put a pin in that and, you know, and figure that out, but that'd be fun if we do. So I think it's, it's apt it's time. All right. Okay. Thanks, brother. All right, take care, y'all. See you. All right. How are you guys doing? Oh, good. Uh, we are now joined with a, a much better connection than uh, last week uh, by, uh, <laughs> by Vic Bayana, um, who uh, was uh, was originally going to uh, do a substitute music segment when uh, Griscom was gone last week, but uh, since we couldn't do it then, and I really wanted to do it, uh, we are going to. Uh, we're going to do it right now. Uh, so uh, Vic is somebody who uh, people, a lot of people who watch this, I imagine, uh, have uh, have seen his work uh, in uh, in one form or another. Uh, you know, probably some of the illicit histories for uh, the Michael Brooks show. I think I said last week that you know that uh, like the one um, like the Jamaica one, like I always think of. That's like a uh, uh like it's such a it's like like it's so fun to watch you know it's 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 like it's it's so nicely put together like i always think like that's something you could show um like that's something you could show your like fairly apolitical brother-in-law who's interested in gangster movies you know like and and, and he'd end up learning a bunch of stuff about the history of socialism in jamaica and u.s imperialism and all of that but uh, but he'd still be into it uh so uh, and yeah, I remember, you know, when I used to be over at, uh, at, you know, Michael Brooks place and, you know, Brooklyn, you know, he'd like be always like, if there's one of those that had just come out, you know, he always wanted me to watch it. And he, was, he was like really excited and proud of those. Uh, and more recently, uh, they, well, actually both of you guys worked on the, um, uh, the uh, Thomas Frank, like mini documentary for, uh, for the Jacobin channel, uh, which, uh, which we played on the, uh, you know, live stream here a while back. Um so obviously Vic is a uh, is a very talented guy, but none of that has anything to do with what I want to uh, <laughs> uh, to uh, do tonight, uh, which is more just uh, that you know as I was as I was saying you know last week you know before the uh, the connection went on the fritz you know I, I started doing this segment with uh, with Griscom uh, you know because this was sort of my um, 
you know, when, when I used to, you know, to go bar hopping with him, you know, that would be like this sort of end of the night, we'd be back at his apartment, you know, pour another drink, and then he'd like put on some music and tell me about it. And, you know, I was, oh, this is fun. You know, I want to share this, you know, with, with everybody, uh, the world in large, at large, or the percentage of the world that watches GTA. Uh, and, but, uh, but I think oftentimes, you know, if the, um, if the roles were, were reversed, you know, maybe not with him, but with other people, and, uh, and it was the end of the night, it was at my apartment, you know, I was like pouring them drinks and playing the music, probably what I'd play them would be much more like what I often see uh, Vic posting about. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I thought it'd be fun to, uh, to do, you know, to do one of these segments and talk about some of that. Yeah, totally. No, thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, so I've, I've seen you, you know, I've seen you a lot uh, in in the past, um, you know, post about a lot of the kind of uh, like nineteen seventies kind of you know rock music that uh, that that I've always really liked. Also, uh, so you know, um, you know, Zeppelin, um, Ozzy Era Sabbath, uh, you know, things, uh, you know, things like that. So you know, I, I thought that yeah, I thought this might might just be a fun opportunity to uh, to to just you know to just chat about a few of your favorite albums. We're not going to worry too much about you know what we what you cover in the next fifteen or twenty minutes. You will be back, right? Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we kind of started talking about Black Sabbath a little, so we can start there for uh, sure. this week. yeah, go for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I mean it's funny because this uh, you know. This stuff was old when you know I started listening to it, right? But yeah. for whatever reason, it's just you know that period just really like stands the test of time, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I think I mean Sabbath, you know, uh, you know what it is about them too is that they you know invented metal, but deep down they're really like just a blues band, you know. Like yeah. when you to some of their stuff, it's like okay, they they down tuned everything and made it all you know awesome yeah. mm-hmm. horror movie lyrics, but like. You know, it's like so not like basic. You know, I'd say basic blues, but by just you know to mean that it's like um, at its roots. You know, that that's what it is. So it is kind of funny that like that sound just kind of endures. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Ozzy Osbourne says that in his memoir, which, by the way, um, I check that out. Yeah, I, I really recommend that book. Actually, I don't know how much. I mean, look, I'm sure, like, uh, <laughs> I'm sure to some extent you have to read it as like a novel that his ghost, you know, came up right. with basis of whatever Ozzy mumbled at him, but right. so, yeah, whoever is responsible for writing however much of it, uh, it's, a, yeah, it's a really good read. And he actually has a line in there where he says, um, I, you know, people say we invented something called, uh, called heavy metal, but I don't understand that because 70s metal, 80s metal, 90s metal, it's all totally different. As far as I was ever concerned, we were a blues band who played some spooky songs. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the, you know, the cool thing about them too is that, you know, kind of the whole um get their whole guitar sound was a total accident and kind of like a product of obscene working conditions in northern <laughs> england at the time because you know tony iomi famously he worked at a factory you know while they were starting out as a bar band i think he was like 18 or 19 when this happened and he um on his like day before he quits right because they got have a bunch of gigs finally lined up he um you know he cuts two of his fingers on a machine and gets the fingertips like literally you know has to yeah yeah that, like as and I, then that's why he downtunes his guitars from then on. And then everyone else, you know, in the band had to downtune as well, or the bass player had to downtune as well. And so, you know, it is kind of funny that it's like yeah, a product it's a, of its material conditions. Yeah. 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 The English working class. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Right. Like and that is also a big, um, 
Yeah, I was thinking also in that Ozzy book, you know, he talks about like sort of growing up uh, really, I mean, you kind of forget like, you know, not very long at all uh, after the uh, the end of World War II. So he said yeah. like some of the, the places that they like treated as playgrounds and like, you know, played it as kids were like, were like bomb sites, you know, that like, you know, just yeah. like sort of blown up patches of, uh, of, <laughs> of ground that the kids turned into a playground. And yeah, as, as, um, as you say, uh, my my understanding of that Tony Ilmi story is is that actually it's uh, it's even slightly worse because he um, came home at lunchtime, right, and 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 said, and he was living with his uh, his his mom at least maybe mm-hmm. both of his parents at the time, and said, look, I'm um, you know today's my last day. We're gonna you know start touring or whatever. Uh, I think I might not. I think I might not go back. It's, you know, oh, like, like, like this is, this is, you know, this is silly. Like why, why even do this? Like I last few hours of industrial labor and his mom said, no, Tony, you know, right. you know, finish out, right. Go back and finish the day. <laughs> and then he gets into this industrial accident, you know, cause of these, uh, these horrifying conditions. And really, I mean, I think, you know, without necessarily dwelling on the politics too much, I think you can yeah. like, you know, hear that in some of it, like, um, you know, I really, as much as we don't usually think of, uh, of, of radical politics, you know, with, with Black Sabbath, like, like that is, that is there. I mean, right. There are those. Yeah, for sure. War pigs. Yeah, totally. Right. right? They, they just started the war. They don't go out and fight. They leave that to the poor. (laughs) It doesn't get much more explicit than that. Yeah. I mean, and too, like when they did bring it up, right. It was always like that, where it was like, um, you know, I mean, there were some songs, I guess, like Children of the Grave, that's another one, um, you know, that's kind of about that same thing. But, you know, yeah, in Warpix, it's just so like, yeah, this is what it is. We're not going to kind of hide behind any kind of metaphor or anything. Um, yeah, that's that's another fun one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, right. I mean, of course, there are other songs that they, yeah, there are, um, well, at, at different times, they, they try less and more to hide behind metaphors for other things, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, more than uh, politics. The uh, so right. I'm thinking, like, for example, uh, there's uh, Snowblind, uh, right? And Sweet Leaf, the <laughs> you know, Sweet Leaf, yeah, yeah, both of those, right? <laughs> both awesome songs for doing those respective tracks. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, especially, and both of those songs I think really capture the mood of uh, of those two things, you know, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, you know, especially because, yeah, um, right. I think on yeah, Black Sabbath Volume Four, right? There's, I think there's uh, Supernaut, and then there's Snowblind right yeah, after yeah. that. And Supernaut is one of those songs that has like this this sort of turn in the middle where it kind of kicks up into a uh, yeah you know, higher gear. No blind is just there the whole time, which uh, yeah, which I think usually I think maybe in the studio album context we're a little bit more um, you know they're a little bit more uh, indirect and coy about. Although there is I I, I do remember listening to a um, uh, to a live album from uh from from the 80s that's like ozzy and randy Rhodes, where he just he just opens up like snowfly with this is a song about cocaine <laughs> that's great <laughs> but uh but of course it's uh you know i mean it's it's not all it's not all like that right you know you do you do have stuff that's that's in a much more uh direct and obvious way is is from that you know that that bluesy tradition and you have uh and you have songs on all of those albums that are like you know like quiet and even you know even kind of mournful yeah absolutely that kind of like dirge sound um i'm trying to think of a one or there's this one under the sun that's on volume four something mm-hmm. like that 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's very, yeah, that's a very chill track. Like, I had to come up on, like, another playlist the other day and was like, oh, this doesn't exactly sound like Sabbath when you first think about it. But yeah, yeah. yeah they were steeped in that kind of psychedelic. I think it's because of all the psychedelic things that were going on at the time. They were really steeped in that, too. They kind of pulled from, like, multiple different uh, directions of what was going on at the time. Yeah, no, that makes, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know, and, and again, it is, even though, you know, we, we associate it with, uh, you know, later metal that was, was influenced by it. Um, and, you know, obviously there is that like distinctive thing, you know, that they're, they're pulling, you know, the, the name of the band and, you know, me lyrics from right. songs from, you know, some kinds of like, you know, pulp and horror movie things. Uh, but you know, I mean that that kind of combination of of musical styles, you know, is is something that you get with a lot of seven days bands that we wouldn't associate with that tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's fun too when you hear about how they just decided to start approaching. Right, they saw the movie Black Sabbath, and then they were like, "Oh, what if we?" I think they, Ozzy even said that they asked, like, "What if we made horror music?" Like how there's horror movies, and that's just kind of how you know they took the title and just ran with it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then you know, I think that that riff too, Tony Homie wrote it and was like, you know, it sounds like um, that scale is like the the old gothic kind of scale. I, I don't actually know any music theory, but uh, you know, <laughs> I know enough to, know enough to like that. <laughs> vaguely have heard these terms. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. No, but I mean, it, it definitely does have that you know horror like yeah horror movie soundtrack you know kind of kind yeah. of gothic you know feel to it. You know the uh, the actual song Black Sabbath. Um, so, uh, yeah. So somebody in, in chat reminds us, right. You know, there was this like brief period, right. The name was going to be earth. Yeah. I'm going to look this song up <laughs> once I get up. That's, that sounds very interesting. Um, yeah. Um, and, and it is also, it is also interesting. So I, I think last week, you know, when we didn't quite succeed in doing this segment, I, uh, you know, like I mentioned, there there is you know there is something that's in all that kind of horror imagery that they, um, you know, I mean, obviously that you know this is something that they've always you know played you know they always played up and played to you know this this um, this sort of wow this is like really like you know evil and satanic you know that uh, you know that that you know like sort of Ozzy doing the, you know, the Prince of Darkness shtick and there's the, and uh, I mentioned, our, I think that, yeah, when I saw their uh, reunion uh, concert, reunion tour in uh, Florida in uh, 2013, I remember like one of the images they were projecting on the, uh, on the screen during the concert was of some like 1970s, like evangelical, yeah. you know, protester holding up signs saying Black Sabbath exalts Satan. Yeah. Uh, but actually, of course, uh, really doesn't, right? I mean, the actual, uh, the actual right. lyrics uh, are, are not, you know, really almost ever, you know, at all like that. You know, if anything, right. like War Pigs, you know, has the, has the lyric about the, uh, the, the the generals and war planners, you know, being like, where, right. you know, witches gathered at dark Sabbaths, you know, it's not a compliment. Right, right. Yeah, no, most of their songs are about how, like, scary and bad the devil is. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is fine. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, you know, the uh, Christian right's not exactly known for their subtle approach to things, to reading things, but... um yeah, no, that is, I mean, it's funny that over time, like, that's now just, like, a funny footnote for Black Sabbath, whereas, like, in the 70s and 80s, like, that was, like, a legitimate thing that, you know, these conservative people organized around. 
um, you know, like I remember back in the day, you know, VH1 would do all these like music history retrospectives and they, you know, they had a bunch of stuff on the, um, the, uh, parents music uh right whatever yeah, that yeah. yeah the parents music council or whatever the tipper yep. gore thing and those yep. hearings and it's just wild that like i mean we talk about like the culture war now but like that stuff is the fact that people took that that seriously is kind of nuts oh yeah uh i think chapo did a thing about the oh. uh, the, the tipper gore parents music council whatever that was called and, uh, and, and, and like some of what they got into, I, I don't remember who the guest was, but some of what mm -hmm. they got into in there is crazy in retrospect, like the stuff that like the, you yeah. know, that, uh, you know, Tipper Gore and everybody was obsessed with at the time, you know, it's like, you know, it's like how evil like Prince is, you know, like stuff right. like that. <laughs> hard to wrap your mind around you know right. that was, you know like that was really the issue before. it's super it's super low stakes culture war yeah you know i mean like like who's gonna if if you're upset that kids are like might be listening to the explicit music like who's really gonna be upset that you're coming after that you know what i mean right right especially especially if you're like a like a presidential or vice presidential candidate's wife or something and you're looking for an issue to capitalize on like that right. of course is going to be a big one because i don't know like it's not like anyone's going to be like no i'm super pro like right. listening to to the most well, i guess it also has it comes from that like protect the children attitude that yeah. people have about like yeah yeah like the the helen lovejoy will somebody please think of the children <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right 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 and and what the children are being protected of from in this case is right like, you know i don't know sex horror movie imagery you know like, right. like drugs and rock and roll <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know um and yeah it's all very you know culturally specific and the way that uh, you know and how quickly uh it can it can shift is is really remarkable like i remember uh yeah. several years back you know uh watching the uh you know the super bowl in like uh i don't know 2012 or something and um and, you know, as like, you know, getting ready to do the opening kickoff, you know, they're playing from uh, Ozzy's first uh, solo album, you know, Crazy Train. And I remember thinking like, this is amazing because like, look, when this album came out, right, there were people who there were like these big lawsuits about how right. was, like encouraging teenagers to commit suicide. And now it's so wholesome. You can play it at the Super Bowl. <laughs> Totally. Well, you know, the Super Bowl has its own history of like weird, uh, you know, musical. Well, I guess they, you know, they decided it was, you know, that sexy things were too much. And then they kind of veered hard into like the classic rock stuff for a while. So then I guess that's how all that got grandfathered in. <laughs> I mean, it's also how Democrats can show, you know, over time that they're culturally conservative enough to be taken right. seriously by like Southern and, you know what I mean? Like, like more rural voters because all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm not tolerant and liberal. Look at all this music. I don't like this music. I don't right. like Right. Especially in that era of like, you know, Al Gore from Tennessee and yeah, 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 yeah. That totally makes sense. Cause they were, I mean, it seems like in hindsight, it was like the liberal Democrats who were riding that hard to a certain extent and like the Christian right too, but it was kind of a bipartisan thing too, which is wild. It's the, I mean, it's the, why should the, uh, why should the Republican party have a stranglehold on the <laughs> kind of theory? Right. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, which was a lot of the explicit theory, you know, behind um, uh, behind Bill Clinton and uh, and the uh, the Democratic Leadership Council, 
uh, that by taking, you know, these, you know, kind of culture war issues, although culture war, including things like crime and welfare, you know, that like by riding to the right on them, like this is what, I mean, as, as crazy as this is and hard as this is to remember, the explicit theory was that they were going to like take those issues off the table because if, if they, you know, if they went crazy right wing on them, if they, you know, if they, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, added a hundred thousand cops to the street and, you know, ended welfare as we know it, right. uh, then, uh, then the Republicans just couldn't run on those things anymore. And of course, you know, what we've, you know, that's, that's not really what we've seen. Well, look at, well, look at Bill Clinton, even like literally executing a mentally like handicapped, uh, like person in, in Arkansas, like he did that right before the election. So they can't say that he is soft on the death penalty. Right. It was horrific. And like, even his own friends were like, please don't do this. Like, this is not something you have to do. And Bill Clinton turned around and literally right before the election just executed the guy. Yeah. 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 Right. Was fairly so severely mentally handicapped that the story is that he uh, asked for some of his last supper to be put aside for later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's the, uh, the, uh, Christopher Hitchens book uh, from the 90s, uh, No One Left to Lie to, uh, about, uh, mm-hmm. about Bill Clinton, like the, yeah, the, the section in there about uh, Willie Ray Rector, that, that uh, uh, death row inmate, you know, is, is just, is just harrowing. And it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's the, uh, you know, uh, early leftist Hitchens at his best, you know, that sort of right. talking about like how, you know, this is the, uh, you know, apparently he, uh, he thought like that the, uh, that that the doctors were you know looking for a vein you know for the lethal injection you know we're like you know we're, we're like that this was just some like regular medical procedure and he talks about how this is like some people from this background this is the only place they could get medical care was in prison you know and, right. and so it's, it's just you know and anyway this this went in a much grimmer direction than i was planning on for, uh, <laughs> for this, uh, this conversation. well that's just how ozzy would have <laughs> Or, well, now that we're thinking about this era, right? I mean, it's funny because I'm of the age where I first yeah. heard Ozzy Osbourne because of the show The Osbournes, yeah, right. <laughs> in middle, which would have been when I was in middle school-ish. Um, and so it's just, yeah, I was watching, I went back and like watched some of that on YouTube a couple weeks ago. Uh, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's just very funny early reality TV. It's just kind of him, you know, yelling at his family and not being very, uh, you know, articulate. Yeah, which is crazy because because uh, he enunciates so clearly what he's singing. Right. <laughs> you know, somehow, whatever he's just talking is like, oh. right. Yeah, I mean, even when you saw him for that reunion show a couple of years ago, like his vocals were still uh, on point, more or less. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. That's still uh, yeah. funny. I guess like it's it must be like a I think it's like a mental process, right? If you're vocalizing, it's a little easier to enunciate, yeah. and you know, because you have to elongate your vowels and stuff. And, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's good, but yeah. That's yeah, there is even like the one like uh like reunion album they put out around that time. It's the uh it's like a studio album. I remember there's like the track oh, the one with God is dead on it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which is like when they're finally like, okay, hell, you know, like all the other stuff was about, you know, saying this scary and bad, but like whatever. This is you know this, this is a real scary shit associated <laughs> with this, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna like, you know, get some juice out of this. Let's just play to it. Right. <laughs> Uh Forrest, were you gonna say oh, something? Yeah, sorry. Um, the Osborne, I mean, it's kind of like the model for later, like reality yeah. family TV shows, and now there's so many of them. But I mean, that yeah, really, I mean, really as far well as I can person. remember. Yeah, and it, and it's funny yeah. that that's the family that they chose because you know what I mean. Like it, they are such a like a strange, 
combination of people i feel like once <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah yeah no absolutely um and yeah i think uh like a, and it's it's actually the the family history is pretty weird also like uh like sharon osborne you know his uh his wife you know it's like uh, her father was the producer for for black sabbath who kind of uh you know, like who kind of kicked Dozzy out of the band, you know, when they, uh, oh. they, they transitioned to the Dio, you know, era. So it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's like the, like it's, 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 it's a, like, it's gotta be like a, a pretty strange, uh, set of, uh, set of family relationships there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Somebody in chat says the SNL skit where, uh, Ozzy sings. So the guy at McDonald's can understand. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I can. No, yeah, I, I can absolutely imagine that. All right, look, I don't want to. I don't want to hold you any longer. But this was fun. We absolutely have to uh, to do this again and uh, and do it for other bands. For uh, yeah, definitely, anytime, man. All right, all right. Thanks take care. Have a good night, guys. All right, thanks. All right, uh, if uh, if people have uh, any other super chat questions, uh, we will uh, we will do that at the end when we wrap up. Uh, meanwhile, I do want to do uh, a, a little preview of uh, episode 25 coming out on Thursday for patrons, uh, which is going to be continuing uh, the monthly series of Sopranos recaps that I've been doing with uh, Mike Racine, uh, Nando Vila, and uh, Wozni, uh, Big Waz Lambre. So it's a uh, it's a very um, you know it's a very slow. Uh, you know, scenic tour, you know, through, uh, through the Sopranos. If you, uh, if you haven't watched and you started watching because of this, you know, you probably started watching the first time we did one and finished already, uh, the, uh, all, you know, six or seven seasons, depending on how you count it. Uh, but it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun to, uh, to do them. And, uh, and, and I think every, every single one of these has been pretty good. All right. I'm now joined by Nando Vila, Wazni Lambre, and Brendan Falone to uh, to talk about uh, the, uh, the third episode of the first uh, first season of The Sopranos: Denial, Anger, Acceptance. So, uh, thank Which you, guys. I'm I'm Denial. <laughs> okay, I'm Tony Soprano in that episode where he plays golf with Kuzumano and his friends and realizes they were just mocking him the whole time. <laughs> That's what that's what I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Uh, now this is uh, yeah. What so this is um, honestly this I thought this was kind of an intense episode. Like it was spectacular. Uh, yeah, it was so good. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, so um, I mean, I think yeah. Just as an episode, I think certainly you know the best episode of the first three. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll I'll also say at, at the risk of uh, of make, making this not fun, but which is not my intention, that like this definitely hit differently for me this time than the last time I saw the episode, which was I think in 2019 when I started the last uh, rewatch, because the whole thing is about different characters facing death and thinking about the reality of death and you know how they're going to handle your dick it. cut off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had my dick cut off this year, so like that was yeah. really cool, but, you know. I think this is the best episode of the season so far. Yeah. And I've seen yeah. this episode four times because I've watched the show twice, but then I watched this episode for another podcast that I did. And there's so I'm much. cheated on this podcast episode. With another podcast two years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, 
there's just so much there that I didn't see the first three times I watched it. Yeah. yeah. The show never, the show never beats you over the head with anything, you know? No. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's why oh, people like my mother-in-law like it. Cause not, she, she feels like it's just a show about Italian guys killing each other. Right. <laughs> the, the subtleties are just that they're, they're very subtle. I, you know, what's so crazy. I never, some of the more like, I don't even know, like the the stuff about Tony with the art. Yeah. Like I never understood that, like upon first watching it. I was just like, what's like this shit is over my head. You know what I'm saying? Like when I first watched it, but like watching it now, you know, you 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 notice what Tony's like he's signaling what's happening, right? Like, like he's he's noticing things and not saying it. And because he doesn't say it, he's just constantly internalizing it. How it comes out is in these bursts, you know. But you you see him noticing the shit with his friend not getting the chemo, like lying about getting chemo, just like fuck it, I'm done, get me out of here. Um, you know, you see it with so many of these other things, and then like, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> whenever people are talking about the fire, yeah, and Artie's like. What kind of fucking animal? (laughs) (laughs) This is like this is the first episode where we see a like the quintessential to me the quintessential Tony Soprano trait, which is very much like a American male trait in 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 many ways, which is that like this incredible, uh, almost incredible victim complex, an incredible kind of uh, um, inability to confront the consequences of one's own action yeah. right like where he's just like he gets mad like he burns down Artie's restaurant and then gets mad at him for reminding him how fucked up yeah, that was that's right that's you right. know like it's, yeah it's like the same thing with the with the the bad guy in terminator 2 robert patrick like that sub, subplot down the line where he like ruins this guy's life right. and then when the guy starts crying you know because he's just like my life is ruined Tony gets mad that because he's reminded that he ruined his friend from high school's right, life. Right. And he's just right. like, what are you doing to me? Like, how can you remind me of this awful, like, this make me, how can you make me feel this bad about this? You know, it's just, it's, it's a classic Tony trait. Yeah. All right. So uh, you can get the, uh, the rest of that episode and every other one of the, uh, the Thursday uh, patron, patron episodes uh, by going to patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. Uh, so uh, five bucks uh, five bucks a month. Uh, I'll, I'll skip the usual Pulp Fiction joke because we've done enough Pulp Fiction in this episode. Uh, but for, uh, for five bucks a month, uh, you get uh, that extra episode every week. Uh, and you also get access to uh, the Discord server, uh, and regularly scheduled, uh, we call them Discord office hours, uh, group voice chats. Uh, there's also other stuff uh, that's going to be coming down the pipe. We're not quite ready to uh, to announce it, uh, but it is all good stuff. Uh, as far as um, you know, as the regular public content uh, on the uh, on the subject of uh, gangsters, American anger, uh, we on Wednesday along with uh, Forrest uh, and Daniel Bessner uh, and Jacobin, um, <laughs> uh, Jacobin Deputy Editor uh, Micah Utrecht, and I think also our friend, uh, philosophy professor Ryan Lake, 
Uh, we are going to be doing a follow-up to our, um, you know, we've been doing these Wednesday movie review live streams. We're going to do a follow-up to uh, the one we did a little while ago about Goodfellas uh, and uh, all uh, five or whatever that is of us uh, have read uh, Wise Guy, which is the, uh, which is the book uh, about Henry Hill that uh, Goodfellas was based on. Uh, and so we are, uh, you know, we're going to do a stream where we talk about the, um, you know, uh, some of the real stuff that, you know, that was in the movie, some of the real stuff that was, uh, that was left out of the movie. Uh, you know, so if you, if you've seen, uh, if you've seen Goodfellas and what's wrong with you, if you haven't, uh, you know, that's, that one should be a lot of fun to watch. It's pretty, it's pretty spot on. It's kind of a curated, I'd say it's a curated, uh, Goodfellas is a curated version of of Wise Guy. Like, it, it's yeah. less like, like it's less that he changed it as much as he kind of decided what to keep in and what to take out. I was kind of surprised by a lot of that. No, yeah, like it's it's pretty practically everything that's in the movie is uh, is is in the book. Uh, there are, um, you know, I mean, I think there are some. Yeah, I think there are interesting omissions. I think there are things where just for storytelling reasons they're compressed together. Uh, you know, there, there'll be things that, you know, happened, you know, over a few nights that are, that are kind of smushed into one event, you know, because it's more dramatic. Uh, I think that one of the most, um, you know, like I think one of the most telling changes is that, uh, Tommy, the Joe Pesci uh, character in Goodfellas, uh, so that that is a guy, you know, Tommy Simone, who will, will, you know, several of the things that Tommy does in the movie are things that Tommy Simone did, um well you know but uh also it's a little bit of a composite character because there are like other things that are like just you know crazy things that other gangsters did uh that you know that are turned into things yeah. that Tom does in the movie you know which which again makes sense Henry, Henry, yeah no yeah, Henry's best friend Henry's best friend is a is a different guy in the book it's it's uh Paulie's son and he's not in the he's not in the movie, but they kind of composite the scenes that Henry has with him into um in, into into the Tommy character, which is you know, yeah, no, with, yeah, I mean, again, I think dramatically it makes sense both for simplicity and also just because uh, I think that for the sake of storytelling, it makes sense to have there be one super crazy out there gangster, you know, who's yeah. who's doing horrible, crazy, abusive stuff all the time to, uh, you know, for this, the sake of contrast, you know, with the other P characters who are, you know, kind of sociopaths, they are in the mafia, but mm -hmm. they're not like that. Uh, whereas the actual mafia, I mean, look, structurally a problem with having the mafia. I mean, this is kind of <laughs> like what uh, Michael Albert was talking about, you know, about, uh, you know, about business enterprises and, you know, and, and the, you know, unequal distribution of power that, you know, leading to, you know, some people to be able to treat other people in these totally instrumental ways, you know, we'll cut off the air conditioning. We'll let the fumes circulate through the factory, you know, um, but part of the problem with having a mafia is that that's just like, a, like giving people that pass that, you know, they can do basically whatever they want to people who aren't members Yeah, uh, is going to lead to, unbelievably over-the-top crazy behavior. I mean, half the surprise is about this. So, uh, of course, it's not just one guy who's who's doing all of this, but um, so they, they kind of consolidate all the super crazy stuff. Uh, into, I mean, it's kind of, it's it's exactly, it's, the, it's what would happen if we had the same incentive structure that we do now, 
but then we took like, like we made it completely lawless. Like it, it's yeah. a kind of it's almost like a narco or a narco capitalist, like a narco capitalist hellscape is kind of no. I think a narco capitalist hellscape is exactly the right description. Yeah. In fact, if you if you talk to people like on the episode where I had uh, Walter Block on, uh, and I I think he said this in there uh, that. Um, You'd have okay in in his you know anarcho capitalist paradise. Uh, you'd have courts uh, and you know security agencies. They'd just be private security yeah. agencies and private yeah, and courts. That, and that's exactly what it is. Also, ANCAP like ANCAP Joe Pesci would be a hilarious. Oh like, my god, character. <laughs> god, I'd, I I would love to see the uh, the Michael Brooks and ANCAP Joe Pesci. You know, he'd he'd be like, you can't trample on my freedom. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, he'd be screaming about Bitcoin and the non-aggression principle. And, uh, yeah, how, how he'd, he felt aggressed against by whatever had just happened. But yeah, look, if you had the private security agencies, the private courts, then um, the obvious follow-up question, which I think I did ask Walter Block, is is what happens, you know, like what happens when they disagree with each other, you yeah. know, as people inevitably will, right? You know, who, you know, what falls on this, you know, you know what the actual line is between this person's property, what that person's property is, right? You know, there's never well, been a society where they have been disagreements, and, and the options yeah. are pretty much the same as the mafia's options. Yeah, right? like if you have a disagreement with another family, either you have a sit down and you come to an agreement, or you fight about it, and the problem is going to be the same one. Uh, that you know, in fact, that uh, Nicholas, how do you say his last name? The guy who wrote the book, Pelagi. Okay, Nicholas Pelleggi, um talks about in uh, in Wise Guy, which is that look when you do the sit down, whose interests are actually going to be taken care of at yeah. the sit down? Like it's uh, it's not going to be some random like shopkeeper who you know um, you know who's who's getting trampled, you know who might be like who might belong to one of the gangsters, uh, but you know they don't really have a lot of direct input. You know they like they they're pretty much going to get like, they're pretty much going to accept whatever they're given as a result of that. Yeah. And, and the same point applies even more generally, you know, that like, if you have like, yeah, if, if you, if you don't have the money to hire your own security agency or, you know, like buy, you know, fund your own court or whatever, uh, then, uh, then it's, it's a pretty good bet that like whatever happens at the sit down is not going to favor your interests. Well, it's feudalism at that point. I mean, like, you know, if you're in that kind of anarcho-capitalist society where at that point you've taken away all of the laws completely, pretty much, and then it's just whatever's in people's interests. I mean, you're you're serving a feudal lord, and then that feudal lord gets to decide what you keep and then how much of that they keep. So, you know what I mean? So at that point, you, ha you have no property. Like, the maf nobody in the mafia has property. They have little bits of, uh, you know, they, they have little, little bits of things that they can skim from other things but they're always paying huge amounts of their income as tribute to somebody else and then that doesn't change based on whether you've had a good day or a bad day that just is your tribute so yeah yeah, yeah. well that's that's one of the more memorable uh yeah. rants for the movie you know you had a uh business is bad fuck you where's my money the place burned down yeah. fuck, fuck, you, you pay me. fuck you yeah and they say that that actually is taken right out of the book too i think but um yeah, no, it's, it's at that point, you're kind of just at, at the mercy of other people, which is the ironic thing about anarcho-capitalism in general. Like they say that they don't want taxes in any form. Like that's their main, that's their main agreement with the system that we have now is that they have to pay taxes. If you're paying tribute to a feudal lord, you know what I mean? In that situation like that, that's more of a tax. 
just for well, no, exactly. I mean, look, rent is a uh, you know rent is a tax that we uh, that we pay to landlords. Uh, that you know, like the the difference is in who is entitled to it and what the what the mechanism is for uh, you know for making you pay it. Although yeah. uh, although you know you can you can claim that putting somebody out on the street isn't coercion, but I don't think that's how most human beings would see it. Uh, and and it's certainly and look, the principle is the same. I mean, this is. I mean, you could you could summarize a lot of the uh, you know of of the disputes that have happened about things like rent freezes, you know, in uh, in the last you know eleven months or so, uh, you know, ten or eleven months by saying, hey, you know, COVID, fuck you, pay me. Yeah, lost your job, fuck you, pay me. Now you go down the list. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's the same. It's the same principle, right? You know, like, you know food, fuck you, pay me. Like it's, I don't. It's, I mean, it, it completely drains everybody of their empathy to exist that way. And yeah, and, I mean, yeah. And, and 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 we can recognize that when it's like a mob movie, but like we, like a lot of people don't recognize it when it's like the system that we have in place now because it's all that they've ever like. Like they can recognize it in their own lives, but like they don't recognize it as a structural incentive to take away that empathy. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I think that I think actually there's a, uh, you know, there's a pretty uh, there's a there's a pretty extensive uh, parallel there. And yeah, yeah, I know that you know, the, obviously the mob does lots of things that would violate the rules of you know, um, of this you know anarcho capitalist paradise. Although we can also ask questions about who enforces those rules, and that makes it a lot more like the mob. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, in a way, it's kind of what Michael Albert was talking about at the end there, about how if you just assume that everybody's going to be on their best behavior, uh, then, um, then sure, it's, it's, it's easy to describe what sounds like a good society. But, you know, that's a, uh, you know, that's a hell of, a, um, of, of an assumption to make. And so I think that actually if we, if we did not have a centralized state and we just had a bunch of private security agencies own different rich people, then it would be even more like the mob uh, than, uh, than what we've been saying so far. Uh, but yeah, that's coming up on uh, on Sunday. Uh, and Wait, that's uh, on Wednesday, right? I'm sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's yeah. coming up on Wednesday. Thank you. Yeah, the movie ones are on Wednesday. So that's coming up on Wednesday. And uh, on Sunday, we're going to be continuing the uh, debate series. That's going to be uh, Bhaskar Sankara is going to be joining us. I'm not sure yet. Uh, I, I floated it to him. He's still looking at it, but I think, uh, I think we're going to watch, uh, the debate that happened in the nineties between Christopher Hitchens and some guys from the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, so, uh, so that should be, uh, that should be fun. And then, uh, for, uh, the next regular episode on, uh, Monday, uh, we are going by, by that point, um, you know, unless, some. Um, uh, super hysterical liberal fantasy comes to pass, um, then uh, then Joe Biden will be president. Uh, you know, he, he should be sworn in. Uh, you know, two days after we're recording this, uh, so I thought that it would. I thought it would be interesting to uh, to go right into it with the uh, the first episode of the Biden era uh, being a panel on uh, on Biden's foreign policy and you know, a Biden and U.S. empire. Uh, so that is going to be uh, Katie Halper, uh, our our friend and frequent guest Daniel Bestner, and uh, Rania Kalik, who actually hasn't been on the show before. Uh, so um, so that should be a lot of fun. Uh, please uh, please tune in then uh, if you uh, if you can swing it. 
uh, you know, f- uh, please do consider joining the uh, joining the Patreon. Five bucks a month, get that f- extra episode every week, uh, and uh, and support everything. It's that, nice, you know, it's nice to let uh, it's nice it's nice to let uh, Bessner have a have a. I guess a, a stream that he's not gonna have to defend himself on Twitter for the next. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He did, on, uh, he did the one on fascism with uh, with with Dan with Jason Stanley and everybody. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's but right. Why is that one? <laughs> yeah, which which actually has been uh, so. Yeah, he did that, and then also we. Uh, I wrote a uh, I co-wrote an article uh, with Bessner on the same uh, on the same subject. Uh, you know, basically the uh, the fascism debate and the coup debate. Uh, so that was in uh, in Jacobin uh, came out uh, at the end of last week, uh, last Friday, I think. Uh, so it's called uh, Trump is a threat to democracy, but that doesn't mean that he's winning. Uh, and uh, we actually had, yeah, we actually had some fairly crazy, uh, you know, pushback uh, for uh, for this article. So uh, Noah Smith. Who's a opinion? Who's a uh, opinion writer for Bloomberg? Uh, and so you know, it's like you know, it's not the New York Times, but it's like a fairly mainstream you know uh, media position. Like a C-list New York Times, I feel like when you get into the opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you get into Bloomberg opinion, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was uh, I was arguing with him. Uh, about uh, on on Twitter, and it was just like whatever. Like this this part isn't even like that excited. It was just like a pretty mundane sort of lefty versus liberal argument about the uh, the two thousand dollar check issue. Uh, you know whether um, whether telling people for months that you were going to do a two two thousand dollar check and then doing a fourteen hundred dollar check is just fine because uh, you. Um, uh, because it adds up to two thousand dollars. Uh, yeah, it's like it's the broke guy defense. That's like you know they're like, oh, I'll give you two thousand dollars, don't worry. And then they're like, well, actually, you know, last week you got six hundred, and now you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't have all. What are we, the richest government in the world? Like, calm down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, yeah. The if you think about it, it, it it's we basically gave you 2000 because it adds up to 2000, you know, when we combine it with the money that you already spent back in December um, is I like uh, Gene Bajalan had a line about this uh, on Twitter about how this is basically the uh, political equivalent of the, Hey, sorry, baby. I thought we were on a break and you never yeah. asked. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah. Um, but so we were going back and forth about this and, you know, and, and about, uh, you know, Rashida Tlaib and whether, you know, he thought that it was ridiculous that since she was only pushing for uh, $2,000 in, in December. And so he said, well, okay, so she'd gone her way. People would only get $2,000 total. So what's the difference? And I said, well, hold on. Um, what she's actually advocated for a long time is that the government be cut everybody monthly checks. Yeah. COVID's over. So if we're actually going to play the game of like what she advocates now should be what, um, you know, should be what she thinks the December plus January total should be, she should actually be advocating more than 2000 now. Uh, but you know, I mean, maybe 3,400 if it's going to be 2000 a month, you know, but, uh, yeah. uh, but then, like, he was the first one to say that uh, the minimum wage should be, should be like $20 rather than the 15 when they were, yeah, that. yeah. She said, "Yeah, $15 made sense when Fight for 15 started, yeah. but you know, adjusting for inflation, yeah. now we should be pushing for more like 18 or 20." Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and yeah, all of these conservatives had that, uh, that super like uh, super clever response of, Oh, okay. $50 isn't good enough anymore. Why don't you know, 20? Okay. Why not just say, yeah, everybody needs to get paid a thousand dollars an hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, um, just to, uh, you know, just to be a logic nerd about this for a second is the uh, continuum fallacy that, you know, just cause you, uh, okay, a thousand dollars an hour would be too much. Uh, you know, the, uh, the the economy would crash. Uh, Eighteen or twenty is really fine. Uh, right. you know, and sure, you can't come up with the exact dollar amount of the cutoff, but you can't for most things. It's like saying that if we uh, start out with somebody who's totally bald and add a hair to their head, a hair to their head, a hair to the head, then they'll be wearing a beanie on the stream. What do you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> such time as, and now they have you know they have as much hair as I do. There's a uh, there's certainly you know look at the beginning of the process they're bald at the end they're not bald. Exactly how many hairs do you have to have in your head for you not to be bald? Uh, good luck pinning that down to an exact number. You know, it has to be ten thousand exactly ten thousand eight hundred seventy nine hairs or whatever. I ask um, my girlfriend that question every day, <laughs> but it doesn't. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not a difference between baldness and and not being bald. Uh, and yeah. you know, this the same point goes here about you know yeah about what would count as a reasonable or just you know income uh, for uh, for for you know working people. Um, so yeah, Rashida Tlaib, by the way, is, uh, is one of my, um, uh, yeah, I, is, is one of my very favorite, uh, like I, th I think she might be my favorite, you know, you know, member of Congress, like, like, like she's, she's just got like a, um, uh, you know, there's a very like earthy kind of, um, you know, like Detroit sort of, uh, you know, gonna, gonna, uh, I'm a million, you know, I'm. I don't know. Like, 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 it seems like, you know, it, it, it seems like you can sort of imagine her like hanging out at a dingy bar, you know, like sort of cheerfully bantering with people, giving her shit about stuff like this. Yeah. Um, she's, but, she's very, she has a toughness. I think that it's hard for, you know, a lot of other progressive uh, Congress people to have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's actually, so this is a good deep cut for anybody who watched our um, <laughs> live stream. Uh, uh, Jandra World, a graphic designer, says De Niro from Mean Streets is a fourteen hundred dollar guy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's exactly right. So anyway, we were arguing about this, you know, me and this, you know, Bloomberg opinion writer Noah Smith. And out of nowhere, uh, he he starts um, accusing me like we we're having like a fairly dry argument about this fourteen hundred two thousand dollar thing. Uh, and out of nowhere, he he says that me and Daniel Bessner are uh, red brown because we wrote this article for uh, for Jacobin. You know this, which was you know I think anybody who read that article, I mean it's a it's a very anti-Trump article. I mean the, mm -hmm. the headline it you know starts, you know Trump is a threat to democracy, but right you know this is obviously not you know a peon of praise to Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but because we said that, you know, that, that he's not, you know, literally a fascist that, you know, we should make some distinctions here that, you know, uh, that how we use these terms might have political consequences, uh, you know, that, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Salmon from the, uh, giving the mic to the wrong person podcast. If you don't know, you should check it out. Since, uh, who taught him that word with regard to uh, red Brown, uh, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, that was that was just like a and then um, 
And then Bessner responded to that. He was like, "Hey, uh, hey, Noah, I'm a uh, I'm a historian with with expertise in Weimar and Nazi Germany and the uses to which you know fears of fascism have been put in U.S. politics historically. You want to pick a pick a forum, and you know me and you and Ben can discuss this." And uh, he said that um, uh, he didn't want to do that. Uh, for two reasons. One, it would raise our profiles, which is hilarious because I actually did debate Noah Smith like a year ago about Bernie versus Warren, <laughs> uh, and he wasn't worried about that then. Uh, and two, because he doesn't even want to to give the juice to the, the fascism question by debating it because he said it would, I swear to God, I'm not making this up, it would distract the nation's attention uh, from like, you know, from, from, uh, you know, the bad stuff that Trump is doing to, uh, you know, resist the handover to debate whether he's a fascist. So, uh, you know, the, the nation uh, is being distracted by, by you know, any arguments that um, that this, as you say, like, you know, C-list, you know, uh, you know, mainstream media guy is, is having with a couple of Jacobin writers. You know what they say, as goes Bloomberg, goes the country. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Like, I think... <laughs> Probably like if we'd done that debate, if we did it on Wednesday, probably like half the people who would have otherwise watched the inauguration will watch me and Noah and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, debating uh, the definition of fascism. They sneak, uh, they sneak Trump up in there in like a in Trojan horse because everyone's too distracted watching the fascism debate. To... Yeah, no, <laughs> but, you know, thank God noah smith is keeping us safe from fascism by tweeting about it all the time so um i mean the thing also about the fascism debate though is that like actual fascists and neo-fascist movements like the people that study fascism like as an academic study like they can't decide what qualifies as fascism you know what i mean like let alone whatever this is like yeah you know, right like no. this debate is endless because there's so many different characteristics that various fascists. Yeah, because what, what you're arguing about is because look, you say sure, uh, is Trumpism like classical European fascism, which is really what you're arguing about? Because you can you can call you like you can call Pinochet's Chile fascist, you know things like that. But that's already a little bit mm -hmm. of a metaphor. You know, you're saying what you're saying when you say that is it's like you know Hitler and Mussolini, which it certainly is in a lot of ways. Uh, but then, like you say, okay, is Trumpism like that? Well, obviously the, you know, like the the one uncontroversially true answer is it is in some ways, it isn't in others. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, there are obviously uh, rhetorical similarities between Trumpism and classical European fascism. Uh, but then again, you could argue that that's mostly because there are, you know, the fascists were drawing on like a kind of a lot of the same rhetorical tropes used by lots of right-wingers both before and since mm -hmm. so Trump, you know, MAGA is a right-wing movement. So of course it uses some of those same tropes, uh, you know, of, so, but look, if all you mean is, is it analogous on that kind of rhetorical level? Yeah. Somewhat uh, there, are, you know, uh, if what you mean is, uh, is it analogous in terms of the actual effects on the political system? Clearly not. I mean, we just had an election and Joe Biden is about to be president now. Uh, so, you know, so there's, there's clearly a big difference there. If you mean, uh, is some of what's done to, uh, to, you know, to immigrants, you know, reminiscent of like Gestapo tactics, then, uh, then yeah, I mean, I'd say, yes, it is. Although calling that a matter of Trump being a fascist to my mind kind of gets, um, the larger bipartisan establishment off the hook. I mean, ICE, uh, wasn't created by Trump. It was created by George W. Bush and greatly expanded under Obama. 
And, and it, you know, it's reminiscent of a lot of the things that uh, center-right countries in Europe have done to immigrants and migrants that have come to their borders. I mean, more like ones from the Middle East than, than from uh, Latin America. But still, like, you know, you wouldn't call those countries fascist. You, you could criticize their immigration policy till the end of time, but you can't call them fascist. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah certainly nobody would. And there's, and there's mm -hmm. also, and, and honestly, I think there's even a more grounded worry in terms of the GOP that especially now that after the, um, you know, riot, insurrection, whatever we're calling it, you know, on January 6th, that a lot more Republicans want to run away from, uh, from Trump. I mean, 10 Republican congressmen voted to impeach him uh, that, making that distinction whether there's regular republicanism and and then there's then there's like trump fascism uh you know i mean i i think one worry that you might have about that is that it it allows the it allows uh the right to like kind of to trump wash a lot of the yeah. rest of the gop see they're just you know they're just regular reaganite republicans they're not like these crazy fascists and, and you see that happening already with you know, people like Mitch McConnell slowly turning on Trump because at the end of this, they're going to like, you know, push themselves back into the mainstream of, of establishment politics and say, well, we weren't, you know, with him till the end. We were, you know, we were with him when he was doing policy goals that we agreed with. But towards the end of it, like we realized he went too far, like people stormed the Capitol and that was too far. And you know what I mean? So, so you see that happening already. And you see in some cases, liberals being like, wow, even Mitch McConnell, like, no, like they were. Yeah, they well, were resistance, Mitch. Like they were, they were riding with Trump till the end. Like, and then you have to ask on policy, where do they differ? They don't like at no point, at no point do they differ. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there, you know, there's when, when it really came down to it, I mean, Trump might use some populist like rhetoric at times, yeah. but like, yeah, but, 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 but Trump by and large, there were exceptions, you know, uh, I think some of the immigration stuff was worse, but in, you know, by and large, uh, Trump governed pretty much the way that Mitt, Mitt Romney would have governed, uh, which is, um, you know, which is not to say Trump's not that bad. What it is to say is, yeah, you know, uh, all these people like 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 Mitt Romney or 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 you know John McCain, who was practically sainted, you know, in the mainstream media when he died, like all of these people are that bad, uh, you know. I mean, because it's not a matter. Of some special new Trumpist deviation, you know, uh, which is the the game that liberals always play. Like I remember, you know, I mean, look, I'm I'm 40, so I'm old enough to remember uh, in the Bush era uh, when it was um, when like there was this super common you know, like talking point that you heard everywhere about how Bush and Cheney aren't like regular conservatives; they're something new and special and dangerous. Uh, you know, there there were there were Republicans, you know, who said that, but certainly tons of liberals said that. Uh, and then, of course, they were, you know, the, you know, Bush and Cheney and all those guys, you know, were, uh, you know, largely been rehabilitated now uh, that, you know, that, that Bush Bush is like kind of Bush is trotted out every once in a while as the nice, reasonable Republican to uh, to contrast with Donald Trump. Uh, and I, I and, you know, I'm quite confident that, look, unless Trump uh, has a you know heart attack or something, which he you know might very well have because he, you know. He seems to be in really bad shape physically. Yeah. But, um, you know, if he, uh, but if Trump like lives for another, you know, 10 or 15 years, I'm a hundred percent confident that at some point in the future, you know, uh, liberals are going to be trotting him out, you know, like, oh, this, um, 
you know, whatever demon the uh, the Republicans have nominated now, he's like this really new special bad kind of Republican. Yeah. Um, reasonable Republicans like former President Trump don't approve of him. <laughs> um, somebody had a comment that was uh, like the, the broad definition of neo-fascism, and I wanted to make a point about it, but I'm trying yeah, to please. Yep. Um, wrap up after that. Yeah. See, this, this, is, this is the thing that makes, you know, fascism such a slippery definition is because, all right, so, you know, all of these different, all of these different movements inside of it, like, obviously, the ultranationalism has to happen, but racial supremacy, authoritarianism, xenophobia, like, all, like, all of these things, you know, what if, what if a movement doesn't have one of those things? Or what if the movement, you know, is like that in some ways, but isn't in others? Like, those are kind of broad concepts. And that's kind of what's always kind of, like, I don't know, annoyed me about the term fascism in general. Like, Yeah, uh, well, and it's, and, and it's also worth noting, a lot of those things on that list uh, would apply to most, you know, right-wing conservative movements. Yeah. Uh, you know, opposition to liberalism and socialism, you know, uh, you know, we could argue about xenophobia, but, you know, to, to one extent or another, uh, you know, there, there's certainly been, uh, there's certainly been past uh, conservatives, you know, who, who, know, who, weren't mostly thought of as fascists who were, who were much more openly racist, you know, than, yeah. uh, you know, but, than but also like opposition to liberal democracy. Let's say like we had an election, like, you know what I mean? Like we had an election and Trump lost. So like clearly. Yeah, and, and, you, and you can say, Oh, but he tried to overturn it. But then this is what confuses me about that is that in 2000, uh, George W. Bush successfully overturned an election. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to say, that the clown show attempts to overturn it, you know, first, you know, by trying to convince Republican leg state legislatures to appoint alternate electors, which, you know, they wanted nothing to do with, uh, by, um, you know, by filing this long series of frivolous lawsuits that were thrown out of court, you know, like Trump's appointees, uh, you know, uh, were uh, judges that Trump appointed we're doing all but just, you know, writing lol fuck no on a piece of crayon like these things were thrown out so quickly. Um, and then finally resorting to this mob of uh, of of like QAnon nut jobs, you know, as like the last ditch effort to, to do something about the election. Uh, and even there, you know, in a very indecisive way, um, you know, I mean, again, there's there's certainly you can say there's a hostility to liberal democracy there. But as far as success in undermining democratic procedures, it's actually less successful than George W. Bush was twenty, you know, twenty-one years ago. Yeah. Or I guess really James Baker was running the Republicans' election effort in two thousand. Uh, so it's you know the, the standards here uh, are very unclear to me. I, I I agree with you that I think a lot of this would probably be well served by you know if everybody just just decided to quit you know using these terms like neo-fascism to force themselves to say two or three sentences to explain what they mean instead of um, instead of just slapping a label on it, uh, which which can often, you know, obviously we need labels as shorthands, uh, but, uh, but, but often the effect of having the quick label so you don't have to do the paragraph long explanation of your position is to actually, uh, is to actually make it less clear. And the lack of clarity is a problem, especially uh, if we are going to go around making accusations like people are red brown or just crazy, insane, inflammatory, hyperbolic things like that, 
But uh, that is a good place to uh, to wrap things for today. Uh, so uh, again, uh, the Goodfellas follow-up stream and Wise Guy on Wednesday. Uh, the uh, the Sopranos uh, episode with uh, with Mike Racine, Nando Vila, and Big Waz is dropping for patrons on Thursday. Uh, there's the uh, the next uh, debate recap uh, with uh, with Boscar on uh, on Sunday, and the next regular episode uh, next uh, next Monday is the panel on Biden and U.S. Empire uh, with Daniel Bestner. Uh, Katie Halper and Rania Kalik. Uh, looking forward to that. I'll see everybody then. Uh, thank you for everybody who's who stuck with us uh, uh, through uh, throughout this uh, this entire uh, this entire episode, um, which you know, which which has gone a while. You know, I know when when we, when I started this, I said uh, this is not going to be like Feldman. You know, we're not going to do these like uh, you know crazy long episodes. Uh, but you know, we're slipping into it a little bit. But we are going to call it there. Uh, for tonight. Uh, so uh, thank you everybody for watching. Thank you, Forrest. Uh, and um, we'll see everybody, uh, see everybody next week. Left is best. <laughs>